You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Welcome to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Those of you that are getting this through a subscription uh, are probably going to be thrilled to know that you've gotten back-to-back uh, weeks with episodes, which means you've caught lightning in a bottle. You uh, get another episode out. So this week uh, is, is kind of a big one for us. It's our top 30 first-time watches. Sammy usually doesn't partake in this one because he's cramming and jamming and saving rec centers and arm wrestling and... You know, setting up his uh, setting up his binoculars to peer across uh, the way at other buildings with Italian models. What? Um, this is a night recording. Um, cool. As you can hear, another callback. I got my sons on my knee. They're going to bed in a minute. It's a it's a nighttime recording. Hello. 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 Hey, How are you doing, guys? How's it going, buddy? Listeners. Is he? He's in Pennsylvania. Remember that was close to New York? We yeah. have to pass there to go to New York. Yep. Big we state. Are... Todd's the prince of that state. Oh, yeah. The prince? Mm-hmm. He actually the prince in that state? In Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah. now you can get out no of here. The prince? Like the prince prince? He wears a crown. He wears caps. <laughs> <laughs> like every prince? Does like every prince. Crown? He does. No, he doesn't. You lie. I'll send you a pic. I'll show you a picture later on. Okay. Okay, now I'm going to show you. But now I got it. Yes. See, you're a pro. You know, you got to get on with the show. So this is our top 30 first-time watches episode, um, which for those that maybe are unfamiliar or just as a refresher, what we're going to do is talk about the top 30 films we watched for the first time in 2016. Um, Generally, as a rule of thumb, we try to have them be at least a year or two old because otherwise they kind of bleed over into the top 30 films for the year, which Sammy and I... Oh, that's a rookie move, interrupting one of the hosts. Did you just... Oh, it's on my list, yeah. Yeah, there's a few films I watched with you guys. I'll tell you what they are later. You can, I'll show you in the morning over breakfast. Uh, we watched that before. We gotta get on with the show. I gotta get on with the show. Must go on. <laughs> well, hang on. I'll show you my list. You guys can look at my list. Some of the films you'll have no clue what they are, and you won't for many, many years. 
Uh, <laughs> and some you guys will. So don't speak out loud. Look silently. These are my top no, 30. Okay? So don't reveal them because we got to do them on the show. Um, so, uh, yeah, so this is, this is, people tend to like this episode because it gives, uh, you know, it's everything from 20 silent stuff to musicals to Melville gems to, uh, you know, Japanese films from the 60s, 80s action, and everything in between. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a nice, uh, a nice thing we do. Now, uh, those of you maybe unfamiliar with the gentleman known as Fenord, uh, he's just sort of writing for the blog, and he's a long-time gent, long-time member of the community. He's been on the show before. I'll allow him, allow him, I, I'm going to have him reintroduce himself as he spritzes the brute's, uh, Brute Fabergé on, and he's going to tell you some of the stuff he's into and, and uh, what he's going to be getting into maybe on the blog lately, or not lately, but to come. So, Fenor, take it away, dear buddy. Yeah, so, um, like you said, I've been on the, I've been in, I think I've been around since the Palaver board days. Um, that was right before it switched over to the Facebook group. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just started writing for the blog. Uh, this list is going to be very uncharacteristic of me because I tried to, I made some resolutions last year on things that I wanted to watch because I go back to my safeties so much. Uh, my, I love, I love, uh, 70s oddball sort of crime caper stuff. Um, love Dog Day Afternoon and, uh, Gravy Train, Dion Brothers, um, Money Movers, I really love that 70s um, crime film. So I like a lot of American crime films, a lot of foreign 70s stuff, a lot of Eastern European stuff, especially 70s. Um, but this year I kind of took it to uh, other realms I hadn't explored so much. Um, so coming up on the blog, though, I'm writing, I'm trying to write right now, trying to kind of find as much info as I can on Jeraj Hertz, who's a Eastern European director, Czech director I really love, uh, did The Cremator and uh, The Ninth Heart, and uh, Uper Zifaratu, just kind of a David Cronenberg-y vampire car movie, um, and of course, uh, Penan Etvor, The Beauty and the Beast, which I know that was on your list uh, last year. Tremendous right? film. Yeah, tremendous. I think every film of his I've seen... I believe has made the list. He's a tremendous filmmaker who you and I were talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, and his output's very varied. It's, it's, it's very yeah, it's really, uh, it's um, it's all over the map. And one of the big problems, though, is that uh, a lot of it hasn't been translated. And I, my check is nil, so I have no clue what's going on. But I've tried to watch a couple of them that don't have um, subs. Uh, just to get a feel for them. Um, I'm ready so yeah, to so right all now. the time, so. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's all I'm doing is writing. Writing checks. I'm getting no checks cash. in, so that's not a real problem. Um, but, yeah, he's he's great. Uh, I'm trying to write some stuff on him. I'm writing some stuff on uh, Tim Timothy Carey's The World's Greatest Sinner um, because that's a movie that I, I don't feel like it's talked about much, and... Now that I have Letterboxd, you kind of see, you kind of see a little more what film fans are talking about. Um, I did a couple movies this year that didn't have any reviews, um, some for good reason. Um, but uh, you know, you kind of get to see what people are talking about, and I think that's one of those movies that maybe people were talking about it when it was kind of running the film festival circuit in the early 2000s when it kind of first got salvaged. Um, 
but I don't really see much talk about, and it's a really, really interesting film. Have you guys both seen that one? Uh, no. Yeah. No, okay. Mike Ensley uh, was actually, I think, the one that turned me on to it. He was a big fan. He is a big fan. So, yeah, it's a cool yeah. film, man. Carrie's, Carrie's an interesting uh, individual, to say the least. I, oh, I mean, yeah, he's like... Uh, Oh, he's like he's kind of he's kind of like um, Al Pacino, like with gigantism, yeah, yeah, or something. Like he's like and he's and he's sleepy all the time. It seems like or drunk, uh, especially in World's Greatest Sinner, where he's just lethargic um, for a lot of the time, and then just frenetic. You know, he just goes from zero to two hundred, um, and I, I really like that in actors. Um, so yeah, that's me. Uh, that's, That's about all I got. Word. Yeah. Tim Carey, for good measure. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I know Carey's one of those guys. Um, I think he's kind of like a. I don't know. I don't want to say a, like a crazy genius, but I think he's mm-hmm. he's one of those guys that kind of thrived on creating sort of uncertainty with people around him, and he, he got an energy from it, and was. I think he he liked being a bit of a wild card. I don't mean that in like a rebel sense, but. Right. The way he 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 was wired, I think he uh, just a very interesting individual for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I I mean I I am kind of a completist with character actors I like, um, and he's one of those guys that just is is pantheon, you know, character actors who every time I see him I I just kind of perk up, uh, and just want to watch every move that he makes, you know, along with like Harry Dean Stanton and Warren Oates and. Um, I guess Stacey Keach was a little more of a leading man, but you know people like that that were kind of big '60s and '70s guys who who really bring something special to you know everything they do. Um, but yeah, good stuff. All right, let's uh, let's get into our top ten. As always, we go ten to one, and then we go eleven to thirty. As I may have said on the air, I may actually, I think it was off the air. But why don't we start with Todd, then Fenord, then me. Um, so let's hear what uh, Todd's got, Hot Toddy's got in his uh, 10 spot. Ooh, I got uh, the little documentary action going on here from 2012. Very much talked about, very popular, uh, not only among the group, but outside of it. And I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, it's Mike Malloy's Euro Crime. Um, I can't remember the whole title because it's quite long, but uh, it is an outstanding uh, little piece of uh, cinema history. Uh, Very stylish, very informative, very informative. Uh, It's, you know, extremely well paced, which uh, is nice for for this type of thing. Um, It uh, it gives you comments on the interviews. So to dig a little deeper into what they're saying on screen versus what's uh, what's the truth. Uh, there's some nice animation in it, um, courtesy of uh, Chad Kaplan, I believe. Um, the only real gripe that I have with it is the uh, the faux uh, film grain scratches thing. Uh, but outside of that, mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is just an outstanding little little piece of uh, cinephilia history, and uh, Mike Malloy should you know, it's got something very, very, very much to be uh, proud of with it. Absolutely, yeah, I saw that a couple of years ago, and it. Yeah, it was just compulsively watchable. I wish it was ten hours long. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It really, it's one of those ones. Yeah, exactly. Where you wish it was a mini series, like uh, the story of film or something. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it is rad to see. Some, you know, it, we live in a great age when you get films like in the genre on Blu-ray, and then you get a comprehensive documentary on stuff like that. It's we're very fortunate 
as film mm-hmm. fans to have stuff like that available. And, you know, people like Mike that are getting it done, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, and the man knows his stuff inside out and backwards and forwards. He actually, I think he did the the, the Dion Brothers uh, yeah. Gravy Train review on that, and I think it was Looker. Yep, that's what it was. Yeah, that episode, that's what uh, introduced me to uh, to that movie, and uh, just one of my favorite movies at this point. Dion Brothers. Yeah. Man, that that whole ending scene and Frederick Forrest being like, <laughs> Stacy, he's just like, I think we should go home, and he's like. I'm pretty sure we killed a bunch of people. I don't think going home is an option right now. Yeah. You know, it's it's hilarious, but also kind of grim and bleak. And you know that they're going, uh, they're doomed. But uh, but it's it's a fun ride yeah, to the gutter. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's all I really have to say about it. I recommend, obviously. Number cool. 10. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. Uh, okay, so my number ten uh, is I'm going to bring the trash really quickly here. Um, I, instead of doing like an October, uh, horror thon, which I always do, I did a December nineties thrillers where I watched nothing but nineties thrillers. Uh, some that I'd seen, some that I just missed. And one I thought I had seen, but had overlooked and it has to be one of the craziest, um, blockbuster style movies. I imagine this was a summer movie. Uh, it's Denzel Washington, Ice-T, Kevin Pollack, and John Lithgow's most bananas performance, uh, 1991's Ricochet. Um, I, I had to put that in my top ten um, just because I feel like it gets glossed over. I watch so many, like, Enemy of the State and Double Jeopardy and, you know, these sort of not very good 90s thrillers and this thing is just it's insane i don't know how denzel washington worked again um he is his performance is so grounded in nothing especially on the back half uh it's really just him stuttering and stammering and losing his mind he's 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 uh nick cage levels of um untethered from reality uh but it's it's great and john lithgow is Again, like he's he's a disgusting villain, um, and he lets you know that they let you know that early on, um, and the pedigree too. Like I think Fred Decker wrote you know the story for it, um, and then um, oh what's his name? I'm blanking on his name now. Uh, the guy who wrote Die Hard, Stephen D'Souza. Uh, D'Souza oh, is that the, his name? the book was uh, D'Souza? Yeah. Okay, yeah. He. Um, he wrote the screenplay. So it's got a crazy pedigree, but it is, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what it was going for, but it achieved something far beyond that. Yes. Uh, it's transcendent. Okay. Transcendent. It feels so boring with my pick now. Um, I, uh, you know, every year, you know, you, you feel like you discover a couple filmmakers that you've never really even known anything about before. And I had, They've had the good fortune of having Hulu when they sold the Criterion Collection. I don't know how I got it because in Canada we weren't supposed to have it. But I was like, I'm just going to try and sign up one day. And I wasn't even using like uh, anything to to change my IP or anything. It just I backdoored it somehow, and uh, I was able to just cram in a ton of Criterion stuff. Uh, and I don't know what initially had compelled me to watch this, but 
I did, and I'm thankful I did. It's Pierre Ette's As Long As You've Got Your Health. Um, I never even heard of that. Man, it's fantastic. Pierre Ette learned at the foot of Jacques Tati. Mm-hmm. Okay. The stuff that Tati did, uh, you can see in uh, Pierre Ette's work. Um, they got a great box set that's got, I think, four or five of his films out. And I still have only seen two or three, and I meant to run through all of them. Yeah. What I is, got that th- I got that thing based on your recommendation. I mean, it'll probably be like three, four years before I ever get to it. Oh, but you actually got <laughs> good stuff. Oh, yeah. You're not going to yeah. be disappointed. It's it's fantastic. It's, oh, no you know, doubt. This one, what it is, is it's, it's basically four short films um, looking at... There's, you know, visual gags. There's kind of very much Tati-style comedy looking at urban landscapes and how densely populated things are um, people's um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for their hypochond- being a hypochondriac in a, in a busy urban city you know it, it just there's certain filmmakers that I feel such a joy in what they do and I feel that, that it's evident that they are having it's it's a joyous it's a celebration of film, and they really love the medium, and I really get that. And it makes you feel good watching it, and I really get that feeling from Pierre Ette's work. And, and this might be blasphemy. Um, i I, I got to say that I probably prefer Ette, and I know this is, like I said, going to sound like madness, but I think i got to go back and watch all of Tati's stuff, and I got the box set. But I, mm-hmm. I'm more of a Pierre Ette, I'm more of a, a student guy than I'm a teacher guy uh, as far as Ette versus Tati goes, so... I don't know, because Tati stuff left me cold when I first watched it in my mid early to mid-twenties, and I thought, I, maybe i got to come back to it. I'm just, you know, I wasn't quite ready, but... Great. Well, it's kind of like Jerry Lewis a little bit, right? Yeah. If it doesn't hit you at the right time, you can completely dismiss it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's why the French liked uh, Jerry Lewis so much, that Tate, the Tate connection, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of, it's, it's broad, uh, but, it, but if it hits you at the right time, then yeah, I think it's really, it's... it's the, the, the period I saw it was also my early 20s, so it's been so long. And then Buster Keaton, who I was a huge fan of uh, around that time, just sort of overshadowed, you know, any of that sort of like comedic sort of madcap stuff, you know. Oh, and for good reason. I mean, Keaton is just a master, a genius, any other superlative you could heap on him. Um, but I think along with being br- – I think one of the things that makes those films so accessible is – like you said, they're broad enough to work, but they're also so sharply, there's such a sharp or a keen sense of observation. Right, yeah. With some of the stuff that these guys are putting on the screen. You could watch something, and then like the fourth time you watch it, much like with Marx Brothers stuff. Mm, yeah, yeah. You pick something up every time you watch it that's new, a visual gag going on way in the background that's kind of a recurring thing throughout the film. or. Yeah, exactly. That's it for me for uh, oh. 10. All right. Uh, just to uh, make a correction, yes, Stephen D'Souza did write the uh, script for Die Hard. I was wrong about that. Okay. Uh, uh, my number nine from 1996, China, uh, directed by Stephen Chow and Vincent Koch. Uh, it is Forbidden City Cop, and this was this is probably at this point my favorite uh, Chow film. This side of the Kung Fu Hustle. Uh, it, it, it's so inventive with the jokes, uh, as Chow is. I think he's one of the, the better uh, comedians going 
at least at least out of Asia. Um, I'm not going to necessarily say you know all over the world, but I always love watching him go. Uh, he's always got uh, a bit of heart going on uh, underneath it all, and that definitely shows through here uh, in the relationship between his character and his wife. Um, you get uh, a little play on uh, James Bond style credits. Uh, you get lots of cross dressing. Um, you get a villain that looks like uh, DC's The Question, uh, and this thing is is just lightning paced. Um, it just moves, 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 and there's always something going on. It's always entertaining. Uh, it uh, is compelling throughout. It's engaging throughout. Um, and uh, yeah, I was really surprised because it's always kind of a crapshoot when you when you just start digging into you know 90s uh, Chinese uh, cinema. Just you know, out of the blue, uh, but going in, you know, with the Chow's pedigree helped it a little bit, and I was uh, very, very happy that I finally caught it. So, cool. He is. I think he is one of the, the greatest sort of comedians in the world. I would say. I think. It, do you think so? I, I do. I do because I look back at what he's done, his whole body of work um, mm-hmm. from the '90s onward, and there's just there's so much great stuff. Like, I think he's. Yeah, he's he's like a contemporary. You know, he's obviously influenced by a lot of the silent greats. But oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, even stuff like Lou. Well, not so a little Lewis. I think it's hard not to. But but I think the Keaton stuff is evident. You know, uh, uh, yeah, there's Keaton. Mentality uh, a little bit. There is well, there's the Marx Brothers with the way that he's always he's constantly uh, always uh, taunting people. Yes, just like you know, <laughs> right in their face and being like, yeah, you know, screw you. Yeah, but he always. He, and then he gets smacked. Yeah, he gets taken down. He gets taken down a peg. And yeah, yeah, yeah. God of Crookery is one of my favorite ones of his. I got to see that one. That's on my uh, my Netflix queue. Yeah, but yeah, no, definitely, definitely worth it. Sounds oh, great. Yeah. I'm furiously writing down notes here of what I need to see. Um, uh, my number nine is Bad Day at Black Rock from 1955. Um. With, by John Sturgis, who did um, Great Escape and Magnificent Seven. Um, it's got Spencer Tracy, Robert Ryan, Ernest Borgnine. Uh, pretty young, maybe the youngest I've seen Borgnine. Yeah. Um, and he's a son of a bitch. Like he is, um, he's an asshole in this movie. Uh, I think at one point he t- he tells Spencer Tracy something to the effect of, um, "I'm half horse, half alligator." You mess with me and I'll kick a lung out of you, which I think is a great kind of villainous line. Uh, while Tracy's kind of it, it, you know, it kind of has a feeling of like a straw dogs or um, even the end of like Ninth Configuration, where you know they're in a hostile environment where Tracy's in a hostile environment where no one's going to help him. Uh, he's investigating basically the disappearance of someone who. Um, was uh, had the had the misfortune to be a Japanese person in um, a small town in America when World War II was going on, um, and he's investigating um, for his own personal reasons what happened to this man, uh, and everyone around him is obviously covering something up, and so you kind of get this tension that builds where they just want him to leave. They just want him to leave. They're trying to forget about it, and he's bringing it back up, and he's creating like a lot of hostility. Um, Spencer Tracy's great in it. He karate chops Ernest Borgnine, he does, yes. which is so good. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, Will, you've seen this? Yeah, we covered it on the show, actually. Really? This was a Sammy pick. Let me, let uh. me try to look it up and see what we paired it with. That was the Sammy pick, because I'd never seen it, I think, until maybe... 2015? I'll tell you right now. Uh, wow, I, yeah. I, uh, I know I this one. Up. It always took me a while. Well, the first time that I saw it, which was a long, long time ago, uh, it took me a while to figure out that uh, he only had one arm. Right, because he keeps it in his pocket the whole time. Because he just keeps it in his pocket, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, one of the things that I love about that one is that it, it's really open uh, about the story. It's not really it's not really a twisty film. I mean, you right. know everything that's happening. It's very you know open-faced about uh, what's going on? How this right. is going to play out? And it, it, the great thing is that it you know keeps you uh, seated for the whole thing, keeps you moving along with it. Yeah. Absolutely, and it just ratchets it up perfectly. You know, mm-hmm. it just kind of gets more, more and more uh, volatile as it goes along. Uh, oh yeah, but I loved it. It's, it's it's I think it's clean, simple filmmaking at it. You know, at, yes. among its best. Like it, it, like you said, it doesn't try to. Baffle to use a, a Toddism. It doesn't try to baffle you with bullshit. <laughs> it just comes at you and and it gives you w- what it gives you. Um, we actually, in sort of fitting it, prepared it with a film that probably would only ever be paired on something like our show. It was uh, Almodovar's Bad Education. Oh wow, <laughs> that's a great pairing. <laughs> yeah, that was episode two ninety three uh, back in okay. twenty fourteen, June twenty third, two thousand fourteen. I don't know how I skipped over that one. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, that's it for me. Uh, I'm going to... I wonder how many of my... Uh, it seems like a lot of my... Man, almost all of my top ten are Criterion. Wow. Um, my number nine is Criterion. Uh, sometimes I like to watch older Italian films with my wife. My wife, you know, being a wonderful Italian woman... She digs them, you know. A lot of the cultural stuff's fun to, to watch together, and um, it just. Speaking of my wife. So anyway, um, I like to watch, you know, Jalo or Jali with her or Eurocrime stuff, um, but I really like watching '60s Italian comedies with her. Um, because I think they really capture the culture when it, before, you know, when you see sort of a culture before television and everything else kind of infiltrates it, and it just, there isn't sort of a self-awareness at the time as much. Uh, it's really a sight to behold, especially so close. After World War II, uh, I'm talking about 1964's uh, Pietro Jeremy film, Seduced and Abandoned. Nice. One of the most laugh-out-loud films I've ever seen. <laughs> so ridiculous. He also did Divorce Italian Style, which I think was on my yes. list the year before, which is brilliant. Um, it's wonderful to see Stefania Centrelli in this because, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, I knew her as being um, Giancarlo Giannini's wife in The Black Belly of the Tarantula and, and you know, a few kind of jalo yeah. roles that she had done. But she's great in it. Um, it's, it's about a man whose daughter... He thinks his family's reputation has been ruined by his daughter sleeping with a boy and getting pregnant, and uh, shit goes very pear-shaped for, <laughs> for all parties. Um, yeah, it's it's very very funny and it's uh, great stuff. I, I think um, Jeremy's one of the and you and I have talked about this Todd one of the more 
I underappreciated it. <clears throat> Absolutely. Let's let's just do one thing here, guys. I just want to uh, just take a quick break for one second, and uh, we're going to be right back. from 1977 this is uh one that uh, was covered on the show and was greatly loved i'm sure uh was robert m young's short eyes yes yeah this thing uh really surprised me right from uh, it's got a really uh, ominous opening and you know things aren't gonna end well just from that um you get some uh, some Curtis Mayfield goodness, even though uh, I didn't think he was in it as much as he could have been or should have been. Uh, but that's, you know, Curtis Mayfield in general. Um, it's got a fantastic cast of uh, character actors, a lot of whom you could probably see on Law & Order at some point or another. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's very well directed. Um, it captures the uh, omnipresent dual tension and camaraderie of uh, prison life and you get a, a very chilling little monologue uh, from uh, Bruce Davidson uh, right around the, uh, the third act there uh, I, I yeah I mean I, this thing just really blew me away um, it's got uh, different characters that it develops uh, very nicely and uh, it just I, it makes you feel for all of these guys uh you know, and, and kind of understand uh, where it is that they're coming from, even if you don't necessarily agree with them uh, about almost anything. And certainly not the circumstances uh, under which one of them is uh, is in prison. Yeah, it, it does, I think, a really good job of of humanizing uh, mm-hmm. characters. It, you don't get the sort of stock, cliche prison, I mean, the prison characters or prison film characters. Um, yeah. I think it was written 
by Miguel Pinheiro, who stars in the film as Gogo. Um, okay. I think this was a stage production as well for him, I believe. Um, it is really good, man, and it it leave. I think it does that great thing that films don't have enough faith in doing now, which is leaving things a little bit to the audience to process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah, it very much just gives you what's going on and says, you know, yeah, make up your own mind. Yeah, it's a good one. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. Probably Bruce Davidson, Davidson's uh, shining moment, you know. I can't think of anything where he sort of was able to uh, well, was, be the uh, leading man. And, was he in, uh, wasn't he in uh, Lath of Heaven? I think. Oh, yeah, the Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like um, t- British TV movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that one a lot too. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was again. Uh, like I said, I was really surprised by this thing. Uh, having it, it doesn't really get much attention, I don't think, and I think it really deserves to. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's one of the great things about uh, being a cinema lover. You just start digging. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's why you know. You all and uh, and Cult of Muscle and stuff are able to do 30 first-time watches every year and come up with gems, you know? There's just so much out there. Um, I think, you know, of, I've seen the greatest movie I've ever seen, and then something else gets laid on me, and I'm floored, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's endless well stuff. But that's all I got on Short Eyes. Great. Um, my number eight is from my favorite documentary maker period um i think this is the last one uh that i'd waited to to watch for whatever reason and uh it's basic training by frederick wiseman um, frederick Wiseman. yeah i love everything i've ever seen uh the only two i haven't seen other than this one are primate and uh meat just okay. because i'm a i'm kind of a sensitive animal guy and the idea of watching you know sort of animal torture and slaughter um despite you know i mean i'm a hypocrite i'm a meat eater uh and uh you know i I read urban uh, upton sinclair's the jungle uh, as a kid and was just you know sort of sort of uh tormented by it um but you know then kept going and getting chicken nuggets you know because I'm an asshole. So, but I primate and meat were like, oh man, I just I can't, uh, you know, I can't I can't find the uh, the day where I can look at that. Um, but basic training is great. It's essentially just you know like all of Wiseman's films, it's fly on the wall. There's no talking heads. There's nothing but um, a camera just you know trained on its subjects in in uh, the most the most basic way. And, the, you know, I, I think it's been said by Wiseman himself is that there's no way, regardless of intent to create a narrative, a narrative is created. Um, and you get this sense of all these young men who have been drafted into the army. Uh, it's 1971, so Vietnam is very much in the, you know, um, in the thick of Vietnam. And, it's, you know, it's really heartbreaking. It's all these kids that uh, that are are trying to adjust to something that's just so foreign to them, and that you know this is their this is their journey through to hell, you know, 
there right now with their friends, and right now they're you know in a familiar sort of place. It takes place in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, uh, basic training, but they're all you know more or less destined to go to uh, to Vietnam. So you're kind of, you kind of have that in the back of your mind the whole time, and so everyone's personality is ultra vivid because you know that they're about to be in this uh, in this you know violent, dangerous hellscape um just fantastic though I, I love everything wiseman's done i've never seen a clunker and he's still working to this day and it's crazy uh it's just beautiful beautiful movie about you know about uh human beings trying to ad- adapt to a new situation uh and f- trying to not let fear overtake them to adapt to something that really no, no human being should have to adapt to exactly <laughs> exactly yeah, I, I haven't seen nearly. A... Go ahead, sir. I was just going to say uh, I haven't seen nearly enough of his stuff as I should have, but everything I've seen has just floored me. Um, yeah. He's one of those documentarians that I just I love because he's uh, you know as we've been saying he's very observational. Yeah. And, uh, he doesn't pose himself in the uh, the middle of it. He doesn't you know make a big deal about everything. He does. He's not shooting for style, although there is a style there. Uh, certainly, you pick that up through the editing and the way that he focuses on certain things. He loves to, you know, shoot hands doing things and things like that. Yeah. Um, he's just one of those guys that uh, you know I love and appreciate because of how you know he gets it. To me, he gets it about documentary. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that the and I th- you know it's, that's kind of my gripe uh, about a lot of uh, modern documentaries is how they're all trying. You know, they're all they're, they're all more interested in uh, standing on a soapbox and or uh, making themselves out to be bigger than they are rather than talking about their subject or letting us observe their subject, you know, through their eyes, which exactly. it really should be. I agree exactly. so much about that. I feel like um, the the genre of, of documentary has become so splintered over the past 25 years. Um, mm-hmm. I, I look back at stuff, you know, it was done in the 70s and the 80s and even the early 90s, and it was much more observational. Uh, now mm-hmm. the, the filmmakers are so insistent on injecting their belief, their stance, their personality into it, and almost there's even like that that subgenre of documentary where they're crafting it like a like a, a dramatic uh, or like a, a mystery film, like making of a murder or something. Yeah, sure, stuff like that, or like. Um, was that? I didn't see it. That fish one. What was it called? Uh, uh, Blackfish. Blackfish. Yeah. Was it called Blackfish? Maybe was that the one about like the orca? Oh. Oh, yeah. okay. I thought you were talking about the one about the whales. Okay. No, okay. Yeah. Fish or even tickled or there's a few yeah. that have done that where they they just try to drop the hammer on you. Yeah. Something you didn't see coming. And you know the, the, sing- the single uh, guy who can get away with the the amount of style uh, that other people do uh and still be to me a solid documentarian is Errol Morris. Oh absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love his whole... stuff better though. His early stuff is great. Uh especially Burning stuff Florida. like uh, yeah Gates yeah, of Heaven. So uh, Gates of Heaven is, is outstanding. Yeah. Um but even still I mean I don't have a problem with him being as stylish. I don't know what it is really. I don't know I would have to really sit down and think about it. He's a subgenre unto himself. You know? He really is, yeah. And plus, he's he's a guy who's really perfected the art of, uh, you know, just giving people enough rope and allowing them to talk. 
uh, right. with that with that device that he, he came up with with the mirror on the camera and all that stuff. I think Wiseman creates a similar effect by, you know, he, he like high school or juvenile court or welfare or any of those things where he goes into a space and spends a month, you know, in that space. And then people get used to it. So the camera being there is not uh, they're not on. They're not on display. They're not they're acting. not playing up for the cap. Yeah, they're not. Playing yeah. Up. And it sure. doesn't feel intrusive after a while. Right, it becomes normalized, and so you get to see them sort of. Um, there's no pretense, and there's no artifice, and I, I really like that about those movies. You you feel like you're just sitting in on something uh, that you would otherwise have no insight into, um, and no one's telling you what to think. You're just able to sort of sit in the room and you know be there. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. That's all I gotta say. Okay, good stuff. Uh, my number eight is a film that uh, I'd kind of circled around for quite some time, and it took one of our guest hosts, great friend, wonderful human being, fellow animal lover. I think we all, I don't think any of us fucking hate animals. Uh, I know this guy to be, um, he's a vegan, he's, he's a gentleman and a scholar. Um, it's Joe Yannick, and Joe dropped Kamikaze 89 on the show. Oh, yeah. Fassbender, Fassbender acting. Yeah, yeah. Fassbender acting. <laughs> it's like a kind of zany, a little bit, um, it's a little bit a lot of things. It, it's, it feels very, a little bit, you'd have to go back and, and I think listen to the episode because it's been a while now, but um, directed by Wolf Grimm. German accent, uh, <laughs> justice, kind of cyberpunky, absurdist. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of blind uh, sort of corridors and alleyways, and there's uh, Franco Nero, and there's just a lot going on. A lot talking about technology and, and how intrusive technology and how pervasive it is, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful film and. That's sort of an area I really want to focus more on is uh, some of the early, uh, even early vendors stuff. Um, right up to, yeah. like, it's sort of the 70s German cinema uh, up to sort of the, the early 90s stuff because it's very fascinating to me. And this film, I think it's a tremendous, tremendous piece of work. Yeah. Great. Nice. Go, uh, at, uh, brings me to number seven. seven. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, ba ba ba. 2015. Uh, actually, just made it in 2015, which made it eligible for this list. Um, Alejandro Iñárritu's uh, The Revenant uh, nice. is, is. I mean, I don't think there's many people who haven't seen this, but if you haven't, it's recommended. Obviously, uh, to I have me, not. Really? No, I haven't okay. seen it. Yet. Uh, well. Uh, I would uh, put it on your your bucket list for this one. Uh, to me, this one, the way I would describe it to somebody who uh, has no real insight into it would be uh, it's kind of a post-Tarantino Western via Terrence Malick. Uh, I don't know if that makes, <laughs> makes much that. sense. Yeah. But that, that's more or less what it is. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous and brutal uh, simultaneously. Um, you know, the, the man knows his visual storytelling. It's on full display here. Uh, you got solid acting across the board, especially from uh, Hardy and um, DiCaprio, who 
doesn't say a hell of a lot uh, throughout the movie because he's you know too busy just kind of getting through the uh, the problems that he encounters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is you know it, it's one of those. It's almost like Naked Prey, right? Where it's just you know you don't really you don't need to see or you don't need to hear uh, what he's thinking or what. Um, or what he's uh, you know going through, he doesn't have to talk to people because you know we see the situation that he's in and how he has to deal with it. Then, um, and it's I, I mean I I'll tell you right now I couldn't have fucking made made it you know out of there the way that he could the way that he did. Um, and I know that uh, you know some people enjoy uh, the Richard Harris film Man of the Wilderness more uh, or think it's more accurate as far as, uh, the story, which I think is a true story. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, Oh, damn. Uh, so, but either way, um, yeah, I, I really, really like this. It's, uh, it deserves the accolades that it got. Uh, so yeah, the Revenant. Cool. Uh, um, is it, Oh, it's you. It's me. Snort. All right. <laughs> All right. Number seven. Uh, this is, I, uh, I guess, well, second newest film on my list, second most recent film on my list. And I had sort of seen this one before, but it was – we I had plans to watch it with a friend, and then some other friends came over, and we started watching it, and it just wasn't a condu- – it wasn't conducive to the movie at all, to uh, the environment. Um, and that's The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. So I, I had, yeah, like I said, I'd seen it before, but it was just people were talking and we, we were going outside for smoke breaks and leaving it running and we just weren't paying attention to it. Um, uh, it was a whole, a whole mess. Um, so I finally sat down and watched it. Just, I was, I was amazed by it. Uh, really funny. Uh, Casey Affleck, you know, Brad Pitt's really disturbing in it. Um, but Casey Affleck, I think is almost more, um, uh, conniving and creepy in the movie. Uh, he walks around like he's tranquilized, kind of. He smiles at, at inappropriate times, and he's very sheepish and stands in the corner and just kind of glares at people. He's very, um, he's very almost alien um, in every in every scene he's in. Um, the, uh, the scene where he's talking to James Carville, uh, the the governor. Which, why is James Carville in the movie? I mean, he's great, but it's such a weird choice. Um, and he laughs at an inappropriate time. And he's like, I was, uh, I, was, I was thinking about something else. You know? And he, that's what he does the entire movie. is, is just kind of inappropriately um, weasels his way into every situation and stands over in a corner staring at people. And with these machinations and these sorts of... Um, uh, sort of evil intent that you can kind of feel the entire time. Um, Brad Pitt really turns it on. The, the whole cast is great. Paul Schneider, I think, who I don't know why he doesn't act more, but I think he's hilarious. He's hilarious in the movie. Um, and he's pretty great in everything he does. Um, so I wonder if he's a dickhead or something. <laughs> because he doesn't. I don't know. He's good with like Gordon, Dave Gordon Green. He is, he's always, I've never seen yeah. him. Man, he really stunk out the joint. Yeah, uh, but, you know, he was on Parks and Rec for a while and then just dropped out, left for, for a couple seasons, and just doesn't doesn't work much. And he was on that sci-fi show recently. I uh, can't remember the name of it, sci-fi horror show. Um, but he doesn't, uh, 
he doesn't get enough work. He's really great in the movie. Sam Shepard's great in it. Um, Rockwell is great. Uh, Michael Parks, Gary Dillahunt, everyone is just fantastic. Um, ensemble of character, contemporary kind of character actors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and to bring up Malik again, there's something uh, Malikian about the the way that nature is dealt with. Um, the scene where he kind of take where Jesse James takes uh, Garrett Dillahunt's character for a ride, and he sort of recounts that story, and they're just looking at the stars, um, and kind of just going down this dark road on horses, and it feels that same um, interest in nature and the world around you that Malik does so well. Um, is really prevalent um, throughout the movie. Uh, it's fantastic. So that's my number seven. It totally is. I really want Sammy to go back and watch that because he wasn't too hot nuts on it. I'm like, dude, like this seems like it's made for you. And right. Yeah. I think I've, the links can do that. Oh, really? Well, length no. usually leaves you hot. But... <laughs> yeah. Maybe not this time. Not it's too long. Yeah. Too long. The girth. The girth. Too long. <laughs> but, but, but after the climax sorts of happens, it uh, it uh, it takes on a different realm. But I was so charmed by it. At that point, it built up so much goodwill with me that even though I think it got a little bloated on the last twenty minutes or so, um, it worked, and I uh, and I was uh, I was on board with the whole thing. Nice. I think it really hypnotizes. It'd be, it's a very poetic film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it's to like to the point of parody. Like some films like that in lesser hands, that could have been like to the point of parody. And yeah. Like sort of self-impressed, you know. But it doesn't ever feel that to me. Yeah. And the and the um, the sound design is so good. I felt I, I felt very tense because how 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 loud the gunshots were, and how perfectly paced out some of that violence is sort of the centerpiece of violence is so um, is so aggressive the, 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 the kill I mean I guess it's no you know it's, it's in the title of the movie but the death of Jesse James is so violent and abrupt and and uh, harsh that you really feel it but there's, um, there's a skill there's something to be said for shooting violence in a way that you really do feel the impact and an age yeah Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of comedy in it, so that's uh, it's another sort of layer it's work it works on. Uh, next up, my number seven that we're gonna go to France, late fifties, a director who I was very familiar with and I adore him, but his body of work just the more I see and I see how diverse he is, I think he's pro. I don't want to put him above Melville, but he's probably like just behind Melville for me in terms of favorite of the French New Wave. And I don't think he gets enough credit because his film, he's so diverse. He did so many amazing documentaries. Um, but I'm talking about Louis Mal. I'm talking about yeah. the debut film. He was like seven years old when he did this <laughs> film. It's Elevator to the Gallows. Yes. <sighs> this was a big, like, embarrassing spot for me. I was like, man, how have I not seen this? Um... It works so well. The Miles Davis uh, score is, is just, it works p- perfectly with Paris in 1958. Um, Henri Decay, the cinematographer, shoots it in a way that it, it's the lights of the city, 
are so warm and Jean Moreau and Maurice Rene, there, there's a lot of um, just kind of voiceover from them as they're wondering what happens. And I think it, it does crime and sort of the dumb luck of, of crime films so perfectly. Um, it, I think it works on a number, again, like a lot of great films, it works on a, in, a, in a number of ways. Um, but yeah, the great film. Louis Mal, what a filmmaker. I, I really love him. And I, I want people to go out and seek out more than just sort of the, the stuff that you tend to think of because his documentary stuff is, is first rate as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, just, I just watched uh, God's Country uh, from him uh, about a week or so ago, and it's outstanding. He's, he's something else. And I can't believe, like, it just, it totally blew my mind when I heard, I was watching, Hulu, um, I was watching one of his documentaries, and the special features automatically started playing. And, uh, what was it? I want to say it was, was it, uh, Place de, de la République? Yeah, which is, a, uh, I love it. And Candace Bergen starts speaking, and I'm thinking, man, why is she talking? And <laughs> yeah. they were married for years. Yeah, it just, it, it's a weird bit of history. Yeah, it totally blew my mind. So, Louis Mal, love him. There you go. All right. Uh, my number six, coming from 2014, it is Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was really, really happy with this. This is the first PTA film that I've truly dug uh, in total, uh, since Magnolia, um, uh, all of his stuff has been good up to that point. Certainly, visually good. Certainly, you know the things that he's attempting are good. Uh, but the last few, what like Punch Drunk Love, uh, The Master, um, There Will Be Blood, you know, all great looking films, but they just left me absolutely cold. Uh, this one really kind of—it's a very different look for uh, for Anderson, uh, the way that he shot it. Um, it's different, a little bit in uh, in the tone and the writing. Uh, it's almost Cohen-esque, uh, I think, yeah. in many ways. Um, I mean, you, know, you can almost pair this up with the the Big Lebowski and have a nice little double feature. Have you read the um, novel by any chance? I have not. No. Okay. No. No. Um, but. This uh, you get James Brolin sucking and gagging on a popsicle. Oh my God, is he ever? He's outstanding in it. The way that he just is, you know, kicking down doors, yeah. and kicking the shit oh, out yes. of out of Phoenix, um, yeah. or yeah, Phoenix. Uh, there's uh, there's some very very odd moments, but they fit for the story. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I completely understand the plot, but that's okay because it carries you along uh, through the whole thing. I, I know that some folks had a hard time with it uh, because of how unconventional it gets at certain points, and I, I really, it really didn't bother me uh, all that much. In fact, I, I really liked it. I liked that he was doing something like this uh, with it. Uh, plus, you get the, the beautiful Yvette Yates uh, in there, so that's always a plus as well. Yeah. Um, not too much else I could think of to say. I was, yeah, like I said, I was, I was really, really happy. Uh, to me, this was like the comeback uh, for PTA, even though he's not really gone anywhere. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I really liked that. I. You know. Yeah, that was my that was my favorite movie of 2014. Um, okay. For me too, like a top three or so. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic, and I'm a I'm a I'm a big Pynchon fan. Uh, I like his books. 
the the book that that one's based on, I think, is his most accessible. Okay. Um, I've read No Pinchon, so. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that's a good starting point because the rest of the stuff is a little. Uh, it's a little it goes everything goes a little sideways all the time, uh, and it's it, it can be hard to follow. You know, I think Gravity's Rainbow is one of those books that um, I read it. I read it with a companion piece book um, to kind of help get all the references because it's just dense with references. You know, it's almost like James Joyce or something, um, like a drugged out James Joyce. Um, but I, I love his work, and when I saw The Master, that was um, that was my favorite movie of. 2012 is that when that came out i loved that movie and when i saw it i thought this is such a thomas pension vibe to it and then i think you know a year later he announced that he was adapting a thomas pension it was almost like he was ramping up to it um so i yeah i love i love the master i think more than inherent vice but those two feel very um simpatico to me they feel cut from the same cloth yeah I would. Agree. I'm also with you. I like the master a little more, but I do love both. And I know we've said, and I'm not stating anything um, that most people I, I don't think know. But two things. I, I've, I've got to say, if you're talking about the film, I don't find Catherine Waterston to be as enchanting as I think. They mm, to be. Yeah. No. Yeah. But Joaquin Phoenix, like the run he's been on for the past couple of years, like say, okay, so 2000. Uh, he's got like three or four tremendous performances absolutely Um, and one that not a lot of people saw and the film left me a little more kind of lukewarm than I would have liked um, is James Gray's The Immigrant but he puts in a really great performance yeah I saw that when it first came out to Netflix I think it like went immediately to Netflix yeah Um, and uh, I saw it and I it was it was kind of uh uh, you know, relevant to my interests. I thought it would be a kind of a great period piece. Um, but yeah, like you said, it was a little staid. It was a little regular. I agree. Um, and it's too bad because all, I mean, you had the horses to run the race, you know, Marion Cotillard, yeah. Phoenix Renner, James Gray's got a good pedigree. It's a handsome film. Yeah. It for sure. doesn't really rise above much beyond, you know, maybe a little bit above average. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And with Inherent Vice, I think definitely the worst the worst scene to me, or the scene that just should be excised, is the whole Joaquin Phoenix and Catherine Watterson when she comes back into the movie, the sex scene. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I feel like tonally that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, but you know, I, otherwise I just thought it was great. That would be my only gripe about it. Um, yeah. Is it me? Yeah, it's you. All right, my number. Six, and I think I got this from last year's list, from Will's list last year, uh, is uh, Buffet Foie. Oh, man, so good, so good. Such a such a great movie. Um, uh, the blackest of comedies. Uh, very surreal. Um, me and my friend watched this together, and we had an hour-long conversation about it. Um because at one point, you know, the, the, um, I don't know how much, I don't know how much I can say about it, uh, without ruining it, but one of the characters essentially starts saying that, you know, he's, he's become murderous because the city, um, because the alienation. And I think that is kind of a trope that, um, 
I don't know exactly where it started, so maybe this movie's early enough that that uh, that was a little fresh. But I thought that was a little a little pat and a little easy. But I don't. I think that that was a red herring put there by Blyer on purpose. You know, um, that that's not the point. That's an excuse about the cycles that we continue to perpetuate as human beings um, and the things that we find. Um, uncomfortable or unpleasant about our nature um, and yet keep repeating. And I think it could have been at that point something who I think Blair is very smart. It could have been commentary on the, the sort of this knee jerk um, or this sort of automatic response that people tend to give when they're excusing themselves for things or exactly. Yeah. It becomes so, so commonplace to hear that, that sort of a thing that, it, yeah, it almost because of a parody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Blyer is a great filmmaker. He is. He is. And I've only seen Going Places and this one. Yeah, Going Places is great. Uh, definitely a very different film. Um, and I didn't know what, ex- what to expect, but I think within 10 minutes, the, the subway scene at the opening... Yeah. Me and my friend were both like, this feels very Samuel Beckett. This feels like a Samuel Beckett play. Um, and then about 20 minutes, no, maybe like 30 minutes later when they're carrying a body down the spiral staircase, I was like, this is very Marx Brothers, very like Stooges, Three Stooges. Or when, they, when, they're in the, uh, when they're in the parking garage and they're all tiptoeing to like kill the, one of the characters. Um, and they're all kind of like moving in unison in a really goofy way, like following each other. Um, and then I opened IMDb after we watched it to look at reviews and stuff. And the first review says Samuel Beckett meets the three stooges. And I was like, that's exactly what it feels like. You know, you want to watch an awkward, it comes through. So if you want to watch an awkward film of Blyers that really, I think shows his skill as a filmmaker and Patrick DeWaray's skill as an actor, who, again, yeah. uh, is Beaupere. Okay. Uh, I'll give you the plot synopsis. After her mother dies, 14-year-old Marion falls in love with her stepfather, Remy. <laughs> Only the French. The French. Um, it's handled with, I think, as much tenderness and grace uh, and respect as the subject matter could have. Right. He's great, yeah. Have you seen Siri Noir yet? Um, no. That's the that's the one that's based on the Jim Thompson novel, right? Yes, it is. That's based on pop... What is it? Pop... Uh, I can't remember the number. Yeah, I want to call it like Pop 181 or something like that. That sounds right, but that... you got to see that, man. Write that one down. Yeah. Uh, Patrick DeRoy, that was what made me really fall in love with him. I've had it for I've had it for a long time, uh, and just I haven't watched it for no reason other than I've watched a ton of other things, and it's just been sitting there. So, so, all right. Well, that does it. That does it for me. All right, Fenord's out. He's done. That's all he's got. I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> I did five movies. I'm That's fucking it. done. Gas. <laughs> Next up is a film that um, I think Fenord either mentioned uh, or. If he didn't mention, I know he would love. 
uh, if he doesn't, or he, I know he loves, I would say. I, would, I, would, I don't think it's a, too much of a leap of faith to say, and it's Zulovsky's The Third Part of the Night. Oh, yeah. Uh, Todd, did you oh, yeah. see this? No, sir. Man, this is something else. Um, it's, uh, it, it, and again, we talked about Louis Mal with Third Part, or with uh, Elevator of the Gallows. This was Zulovsky's, I think, feature film debut. And it's based on Zulewski's own father's experience as a resistant fighter in Nazi-occupied Poland. Um, this guy witnesses his wife and son killed by the Gestapo. And it's just kind of this feverish, hellish, uh, surreal sort of layers upon layers upon ripples of psychology and what's happening and what does this mean in this doppelganger and what do they represent and... It, if if you like possession, I think it does a good job of setting up some of the recurring things that you see Zulovsky becomes that they become very commonplace in his work, and it, it really blew my wig back, man. It's it's a it's an incredible film. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got all of the um, sort of overblown emotional response yeah. that Zulovsky's films do so well. You know, I you know that that four movie run. I think I like everything he did, but that movie, that run of uh, that, the devil, the most important thing, love and possession, is unbelievable. Yeah, I've never seen the most important thing. Oh, oh my God, you have to see it. I mean, it's Fabio Testi, and he brings out the backhand within five minutes of that movie. Of course, he that's right, man. I got. <laughs> I remember when I first stumbled on it, I'm like, man, Testi in a Zulowski film. How is this gonna work? I can't wait to see this. Oh man. Who's the female lead in that? Do you recall who it is? Uh, 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 Schneider. Oh, Schneider. Ruby Schneider. Ruby yes, Schneider. Yes. I think they have, did they have a kid together? Or am I thinking I'm mixing things up and spreading rumors about Fabio? Maybe. Oh, no, maybe I'm not it was sure. Deneuve and Fabio Test. Someone, Fabio Test had I thought maybe like D- Delon? Wasn't she oh, married maybe, to yes, Delon? Schneider some, and Delon. Elaine Delon. And then Fabio Test, Duh. the wife. I think it was Catherine Deneuve, maybe... No, it was. Oh, I just had it. Uh, no, I, can't, I lost it. All right. Well, he was married to probably many people, <laughs> and uh, had many many sexual encounters across his life. I have to imagine with uh, probably every woman on the planet. It's the Wilt Chamberlain of <laughs> yeah. European actors. <laughs> totally, man. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so that was me. That means it's it's Totter's turn. Number five. Um, coming from 1974, Martin Scorsese. It's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. That uh, made my list. Ah, very nice. Uh, this thing has a absolutely breathtaking, haunting opening. Um, when she's out there singing in the uh, the kind of dust bowl uh, setting, and it's a funny movie, but it's serious. Uh, Alice is a you know she's a great fully realized character, uh, and Ellen Burstyn um, is absolutely fantastic in the role. Although at times it does feel like she's quote unquote acting. Yeah. Um, other than that, you know, I mean, there's there's some experimental editing going on. Um, 
there's uh, some audacious camera work uh, in here. It's Scorsese in top form, uh, in my opinion. Um, there's um, lots of shots looking through windows and doors at Alice, uh, so you could tell that you know Scorsese obviously learned a lot from Ford. Um, the relationship with the uh, the bratty little son works pretty well. Uh, you get um, you get Harvey Keitel in there, uh, who is you know starts off he starts off charming. But then he gets fucking scary. He really, he's one of those actors that has the knack for turning up the intensity and really making you feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this is one of those films that I I stayed away from because it just didn't look to be uh, something that I would find all that interesting. Uh, And plus, I'd seen, you know, the show Alice that, you know, this was, that was based on this. Um, But. I'm very, very happy that I saw it. It's absolutely outstanding uh, in every way, shape, and form. High, 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 high recommend. Nice. I, that's the, I think that's the only Scorsese movie I've never seen. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's the only one. It's definitely worth it. I'm on it. I have yet to be disappointed by the man. Yeah, I just rewatched King of Comedy with some friends who had never even heard of it, and uh, I, I think that might be my favorite of his. Um, that movie gets better every time I see it. It's just fantastic. Are you a fan of that one? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think it's outstanding. It's an interesting sort of uh, counterpoint to Taxi Driver. Um, uh, yeah. It's got the same kind of themes of, you know, alienation. Um, and, and isolation in a man who wants to be something more than he is. Uh, it, it, it's it executed to a very different end, obviously. But, but well, I think that, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, obviously that um, a king of comedy, yeah, it approaches the same subject. It does a little bit differently by going at, at it through the uh, the lens of um, media, uh, right? You know how how uh, you know what he sees is, you know, what he wants to be. And, you know, he has these little fantasies that we get to see and all of that yeah. stuff. So, but yeah, no, they're very similar movies. I would agree with yeah. that. Absolutely. And it doesn't feel, doesn't quite feel like a Scorsese movie. Uh, it feels almost like a Cassavetes film or something at times. Uh, well, um, yeah, I could see that. Um, I think Cassavetes tended to be a little more just kind of wing it. Uh, but sure. I think a, I think the King of Comedy is more focused than uh, than a Cassavetes film. But I can see what you're saying uh, as far as you know uh, the approach to uh, to the characters. Yeah, yeah, just sort of downbeat <laughs> downbeat conversations without a lot of uh, over manicuring. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, is that it for? Uh, that's all I got on. That all right, yep. my number five is. Uh, a British movie from 1975 by Stuart Cooper called Overlord. Um, okay. It's my second war movie in my top ten. Um, this is a World War II movie. Um, it mixes archival footage and uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of watching a, a young man going to the front lines um, in World War II. Uh, while you're watching his his home, watching uh, footage of uh, air raids, uh, so he's kind of a man without a uh, place. Mm-hmm. And the movie starts, uh, you know, starts with archival footage, starts with air raids, starts with burning buildings, demolished buildings, um, 
everything is uh, uh, kind of bleak and nihilistic. But then you have their experiences in their boot camp where they kind of become friends. They're all kind of indifferent to to war, and they almost have a sense of humor. Like, the movie has a good sense of humor about it. Um, but it's intercut with nightmarish sort of uh, um, visions of him, you know, that he's having of himself dying. Uh, he's trying to live a normal life and just kind of uh, ignore everything, and then it's constantly intercut that he's about to be amidst a hail of gunfire and bombs, and and it really does a good job of uh, of, of splicing the two together um, and creating sort of a, a unique feel of... Uh, lightheartedness inside of like really nightmarish um you know he's going like into the belly of a nightmare and he can't stop you know there's nothing he can do about that um, really beautiful movie too like the black and white photography blends really nicely with the black and white archival footage i think he did a really masterful job of putting that together yeah, no, uh, that's one that I've been I've been floating around for a long time. I never pulled the trigger on. Uh, I don't know why, um, but yeah, yeah, I'm really gonna have to get it. around to it. It's really, it's really good. Not a, not a, not really a feel good movie, but it's not without its uh, lighter elements. Sure, sure, sure. Did we lose Will? Uh, Will is here. Will was oh, okay. uh, down for a while, and I was like, he's oiling his chaps. <laughs> Dude, they're not even paying any mind to what I'm saying. <laughs> Steamrolling everything I'm saying, and I saw it. <laughs> well, were you talking? Have you seen that? Overlook? I have not, and I've never even heard of it. So I'm going to be adding that to my list. Well, it's, it's a criterion. criterion. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful package. I have the DVD of it. Uh, I don't know if there's a Blu-ray, but I have to have to message message Kelly. <laughs> Yeah, Kelly will have the... The Blu-ray King. Uh, my f- next film... What do you know? It's Criterion. I didn't know. <laughs> um, this film... Speaking of uh, feel-bad films... Uh, if you saw Kess and thought... A little too... Uh, if, you, if you felt like it needed to plumb the depths a little bit more... Uh, then you'd be well-served... All right. This, I have not heard of this one. What a, what a, what a, and I think I think this might be Ramsey's debut film as well. No. Uh, oh yes, it was her debut feature-length film. She also made more of her in Collar. We need to talk about Kevin. Okay. Man, this film is uh, 1973, Glasgow. Uh, there's a garbage strike, and it looks at the council flats and a young boy. I just it's this neighborhood. Um, you know, in the summer, and nearby, and it's very much kind of slice of life, kitchen sink. If uh, the kitchen sink was filled with kind of vomit and tears, <laughs> not misery porn. Right. It, it kind of I think that. I think that, you know, if you dig. Harmony Corinne stuff because I think there's an honest. Some people don't think so, but I think that 
Corinne's stuff, like Gun for example. There's an honesty to his films and looking at people on the fringes, uh, or even like Herzog uh, with some of his stuff. Um, Wreckcatcher to me is is just a beautiful, heartbreaking film uh, because it, it, Lynn Ramsey has a knack for capturing um, people on the fringes again without it seeming um, like a caricature or parody or misery porn. Yeah. Really good stuff. This one's going to stick with me. There's a few scenes in particular that really, really that will stick with me. Um, high recommend, obviously. That's by number five. All right. Cool. Uh, number four is from Japan, 2013, from Hitoshi Matsumoto. It's R100. Uh, this thing, I didn't know what the hell to make of it uh, when I first got it. Uh, I actually got this from uh, Netflix DVD. And I, uh, I looked at the little slipcase and I was like, what the fuck did I get this for? Uh, and then I put it in and was blown away. Uh, it starts off a nice little slow burn kind of a movie, uh, you know, quiet. Uh, but when it takes off, man, it goes off the fucking deep end. Um, yeah, I, it was absolutely fantastic. It, it's kind of like um, Fincher's The Game, but with S&M. Yeah, with S&M and Japanese absurdity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Japanese absurdity. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's beautifully shot. Um, it has you know it, it has that uh, that meta angle that I love so much with the um, the screening audience uh, coming out every once in a while to take a break from watching the movie that we're watching and discuss <laughs> and react to it. Um, it's just it, it was unbelievably just insane and fantastic and funny. Uh, and you get that uh, oh there's the 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 disco scene with the uh, the queen of saliva <laughs> which is cuz all the, all the different uh, all the different fetishes uh, fetish uh, dominatrices i guess uh, are uh, they all have like they're like the queen of something and she's the queen of saliva and it is <laughs> fucking hilarious uh, i just I, I was blown away by this movie absolutely high 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 recommend doesn't and i don't know if you'd said this but isn't one of the things in the film that because he signs a lifetime contract with the snm um, like the snm yeah the agency or whatever yeah they say once a day or, or maybe not once a day but a dominatrix is just going to show up unannounced yeah. during something yep. he's doing, whether he's giving his kid breakfast, he's in a meeting at work. Like, yep, they'll just show up. They it doesn't matter when or where. Yep. Him in front of everyone. Yeah, yeah, and then he does that that little thing where like you get that that kind of ripple effect off of the off the uh, the water, and he's, he gets his big like CG grin going on because he's loving it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it gets personal for him too, but uh, it, you never feel that uh, it never gets too too serious. Although it does have serious moments in it, I've never even heard of this movie. Oh my so god, I've it's fantastic! It, it sounds amazing. so good. It sounds amazing. Who's that French film? I can't think of his name right now. Not he. He made um, oh, that cops film. He did the film with the dog. Oh man, he's he's really great. He did reality. What Quentin Dupieux. Oh, uh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like Quentin Dupieux stuff. I think you'll. Yeah. Think. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really. I I loved Wrong and yeah, uh, yeah, Wrong. Wrong's great. Wrong cops. Yeah. Wrong cops. That's the one. I'm, I'm googling bad cops, good cops. Fucking <laughs> good lord. Yeah, those. Yeah, those were both really 
really good. I still have never seen Rubber, which is kind of the. Neither have I, and it's got I the love Rubber. Bowser in it, right? Uh, t- t- uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm thinking, but yeah, and that's another one. It's got the same. It's got the same thing with people watching what's going on in the movie that we're watching. That same kind of angle. That's great. Add it to my list. And that's my number um, five. Or five, four, four. Four. I yeah. said I don't want to go backwards at this point. I know. I hope I didn't. I was, I was panicking a second. Um, my number four is from Estonia, 1979. Um, it's the Dead Mountaineer Hotel um, by Grigory Kromanov. Uh, this is based on a story by the Strugatsky brothers, who are what Hard to Be a God was based on uh, one of their stories, and Stalker is also based on one of their stories, Roadside Picnic. A roadside attraction? Uh, I feel like a dummy, but one of those two. Um, and it's fantastic. It's essentially, it's almost kind of a noir film where a detective comes to this surreal hotel location uh, in the Alps, and then there's an avalanche, and they're all cut off from the world. Um, and it seems like one of the people in the in the hotel is something other than they're pretending to be. Um, it's got a lot of science fiction elements to it while never going. Uh, it's one of those seventies kind of cold sci-fi movies. Uh, it feels kind of like a, 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 a sibling of Alphaville or something. Um, because it's got a very detective, um, a very detective science fiction vibe to it. And you feel like you're not, you're in an unreal location an unreal world um and it's pretty much one location the entire movie is in this hotel um it's fantastic it looks beautiful it has an amazing sense score um the opening shot is i think the only time you're really outside of the hotel um and it's just this winding mountain pass while the synth score plays and it's just a car driving it almost starts like uh, funny games or something um, where you're just watching a car sort of traverse, you know, this road. Um, it's fantastic, though. It's uh, it's on YouTube in full and looks pretty good if, uh, if you can't find it otherwise. Dead Mountaineer Hotel? Yeah. yeah. Really good. I believe, as much as I love Eastern European film, I think this is the only Estonian film I've ever seen. I can't. I can't think of another one uh, at the moment. So that's my number four. So my number four, also programmed by Joe Yannick, um, one that again, probably like a top five or six, maybe top ten, like most embarrassing that I've never seen this films. Um, it just got a Criterion release. I think either just before we covered it or just after we cover it, covered it. Um, 1971's uh, Robert Altman film, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, man. Yes. I think, uh, there's so much to chew on with this film, even like right now. Right now. Um, Born Beatty, I think, sometimes gets... I don't think he gets his just due sometimes uh, as far as some of his uh, some of his performances, and he's really great in this. 
obviously Julie Christie gives kind of a fierce, um, almost like a Jane Fonda 70s kind of really fierce uh, performance. The whole cast is great. William Devane, uh, Rene Auberjonois, um, Michael Murphy, Keith Carradine. Has a, there's a heartbreaking scene with him. Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall, absolutely. Um, and who was it? I'm trying to look. No, I think it was it uh, from the band that did the score. If I remember correctly. A shot by Vilmo Zygmunt. Um, oh, Leonard Cohen. That's who it was. Leonard Cohen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This this one just it's one that. Um, I obviously had high hopes for it, and then I saw it, and I just, I can't stop thinking about it, and, you know, certain scenes, certain moments in it that really uh, have resonated with me. Um, I know we give Altman a lot of love, but uh, much like, I, I just think he's, he's really a filmmaker that took so many risks and worked in so many different genres, and... This came out smelling like roses. Like it would have been easy for him to make a lot of the same stuff, but gosh, I mean, this body of work is so diverse. And even right at the end, something towards the back end, like Gosford Park, which he made a, such a, a British film, like you would you would insist that it was made by a British filmmaker. It feels so authentic. Um, right. Really. And the player. I mean, I think the player is. Player man. That's like I think that's in my top five, and that's a a later period Altman. I, I love Altman um, unreservedly. I will say I've never seen or have any intention of seeing Prairie Home Companion. Um, Started it one night late. I <sighs> and I was tired, so I, I stopped. I live I in Minnesota. Prairie Home Companion. Really? Yeah. It wasn't I live, bad, but I saw. But then again, I like Garrison Keillor, so. Oh uh, yeah, I really. That really would help. I, uh, I, li- I live in Minnesota, and NPR is kind of uh, like our Minnesota public radio is dominated by Garrison Keillor, and he drives me insane. And I, I kind of like what he's I like what he's doing um, on paper. It never never works for me. It drives me a little crazy. But maybe I need to give it another chance. Yeah, it's it's got an interesting. Everyone seemed pretty um, sporting. Like when I watched it, they you know everyone seemed to be you know they were they were yeah. Um, cool. That's number four. Number three, 2005, uh, directed by Tommy Lee Jones, The Three Burials of Milkaides Estrada. Oh, uh, yeah, this is a really, really good one. Um, it's got an instant spaghetti western vibe going on. Uh, Jones, I think, and me and Sammy kind of talked about this. I don't remember. Um, I think it was on the Facebook group or possibly just on my – You guys were on an episode. Were we? Did we? I don't I don't remember. But, uh, you know, we both agree I think that Jones is keeping the real Western films alive and well. Uh, and this would make a fantastic companion to um, John Sayles' uh, Men With Guns, which has a very similar vibe um, and very similar uh, traits as well. Uh, this is nonlinear. Uh, a lot of times it just kind of skips around in the uh, the timeline, and I love that because it still keeps things straight. Uh, Barry Pepper is uh, a royal dick, and he has an amazing O face, uh, which you get to see in here. Um, 
this is a very sharply written film. Uh, it has some, you know, interesting twists and some wicked, wickedly black humor. Um, like the ways that uh, Jones's character tries to keep uh, his friend's body from uh, decomposing, like he fills it with uh, antifreeze, he rubs it with salt, uh, those kind of things. And I was just, I was really floored. I've, I've yet to see uh, a bad Tommy Lee Jones directed film. Uh, I think a lot like uh, Ben Affleck, uh, he makes a fantastic director, although uh, I like seeing Tommy Lee Jones on both sides of the lens. Uh, ben Affleck is slightly less, uh, but I still think he's good. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can't think of much else to say about this one. I wish Pepper worked more. I think he retreated. Yeah. In Saskatchewan or something. Like, he's, you know, he's one of my favorites uh, from that period when he was really working. Yeah, yeah he's, you know, he's really great. It's really good in True Grit, which yeah. I saw. Yeah. Uh, not not too long ago, I saw that for the first time, but it was this year, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> all right, is it me? It's um, all right. So my number three is uh, from 1974. It's a British TV movie by Alan Clark called Pinda's Fen. Uh. uh. You heard, heard of this, of this one? I, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. It's what's that? I've never even heard of it. It's um, it's kind of. It, I think you would dig it. It's kind of a coming of age tale. It's. I think it would make a good companion piece, despite being a very different film to uh, The Wicker Man. Um, it's kind of about. The change, the changing of a country, um, and the shifting from uh, pagan beliefs in England to Christianity, but told through the lens of an 18-year-old boy who's coming to terms with his identity. Um, And the fact that he is, he's homosexual and he's a pastor's son and he has dreams about angels and demons and, um, and pagan kings. Uh, it's very surreal, very strange. It turns into kind of a horror film, uh, kind of a folk horror sort of film. Uh, and it's something that the British do really well. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, things like The Wicker Man or like um, Whistle and I'll Come to You. Um, those sorts of stories where, you know, in England, us living in North America or in, you know, the United States, they have buildings that are older than our settlement, you know, than us having settled this country everywhere. Uh, and England is just such an old country with such an old history. And there's a deeper understanding of thousands of years of history there. Uh, and this movie's kind of about the changing of England and living in modernity in England, as well as a young man who's not what he thought he was supposed to be. Um, and his country is not what he thought it was supposed to be. And, um, it's really strange. Really strange movie. I've never seen anything like it. It's really dense and uh, and um, kind of changes gears three or four times throughout the movie um, to great effect. It's great. It's beautiful and it's uh, uh, poignant, but it's also um, it's good midnight viewing too. <laughs> it's good weird viewing. Um, I just checked that so out. Yeah. You said it's called Penda's Fen. Yeah, it's uh, P-N-D-A, 
apostrophe S, Fen, F-E-N. I wrote it down right. Look at me. Cool. Nice job. I assumed it would be like Panda's Fen, like a panda with a fin. Is how I would have, when I first heard it <laughs> spoken aloud, I was like, all right. All right. So, my number three, we're into the, the real meat and potatoes of the lineup here. Uh, my number three, I mentioned this filmmaker earlier. He's made two films in my top ten. What a discovery for me. What a joy. Um, this uh, dude, Pierre Ette, is magic. Uh, it's yo-yo. Um, if you love the... If you love um, stuff that's got sort of a magic surrealism and looks at the innocence of childhood and the magic of childhood um, in a way that we see, you know, sometimes Fellini does it really well, um, can throw stuff in that's surreal, but it seems seamless with things that are fantastical and just blend in so well. I think Pierre Tate does that. There's, there's, I have to think that um, uh, what's it called now? I get, I'm getting so much worse with titles as I get older. I'm becoming my fault. Oh my gosh! Uh, the Dance of Reality by Yoder. Oh, the Yodorowsky? Yeah. I have to think yeah. that uh, he's a big fan of Pierre Ate and of Yo-Yo because so, I know you know a lot has to do with with Yodorowsky's own childhood, but. Um, Yo-Yo is um, is such a beautiful film. It's sad. It's magical. Um, it, I, I re- it really touched me. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't say enough great things. I would love to get the poster. There's a really great, simple, original poster for it. And, um, yeah, I, I recommend. Cool. Just check it out. Man. That box set is uh, is is. I, I gotta grab it, man. Todd did the right. The pair pair de tay. Yeah, box set? Pierre Ate, okay. yeah, his box set. Okay. It's E-T-A-I-X, I believe. E-T-A-I-X. Okay. Pierre Ate, okay. Let me just, I'll just read this synopsis here. A man has everything, dozens of servants, a palace, vast woods, gardens, a lake, mechanical toys, private entertainment, troops of musicians and dancers. He has it all but love. When alone, he sits at a desk, sighing and looking at a photograph of a pretty girl. Uh, one day the circus descended on his palace, and amidst all the fun it brought, he, you know what, this is getting to be long-winded. So this man falls in love, uh, and he feels very lonely in his life, and he has a boy, and it's about this sort of, without being heavy about it, um, uh, history repeating itself, and the sins of the father rippling down and uh, impacting the son, and uh, the passage of time, and... Yeah, and just and the legacy of our, our 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 parents and what they mean to us and um, yeah, it, it's it's beautiful. Cool, sounds great. Yeah, I can't wait to dig into the set. I can't wait to hear. Um, number two, and it should be said that number two and number one are almost interchangeable for me at this point. Um, but this had to lose uh, only slightly. Uh, 2014 from Tetsuya Nakashima. It is World of Kanako. Oh. And mind-blowing movie. Uh, this has stayed with me ever since, uh, ever since I saw it. It's, uh, it's enthralling. It's, uh, frenetic. It's, again, nonlinear, uh, but making total sense. Um, 
it's a film filled with the cruel dynamics of life and uh, how lives could be ruined from the, from like the top down. Um, it's got a fantastic a fantastic score, uh, including some J-pop in there. Um, it's got some uh, some fun Alice in Wonderland illusions, uh, some you know fantasy slash dreams uh, versus reality. Um, it is absolutely fucking brutal. Uh, in case I didn't say it before, yeah, absolutely. Um, I and Will and I, we did speak about this. I'm not sure if it was. I think it was off air. Uh, you and I, but uh, I'm still not 100 percent certain how I'm supposed to feel about the characters uh, that I spent time with in this film. Um, but there's no way this won't stick with you and uh, make you ponder it all, um, because these characters are just so evil and gross and just but you got to wonder you know it, it was this was kanako made was she born this way did this come from her dad uh he's a piece of shit too so um you know you, you really got to wonder about it even though there's no real blame laid anywhere or at least not that you can put a definitive finger on um and it just it it's 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 an experience that uh, I I know I won't forget anytime soon. It, it really does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you definitely feel punched up after you see this. And it's kind of like a much darker version of like um, Straighter's Hardcore. Uh, a darker yeah. version of Hardcore. More, more oh yeah. Yeah. In in some ways, yeah, absolutely. Because I th- yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I, that's kind of what I think. Um, Koji Yakusho, what a beast. I mean, he's just a beast of an actor. What a performance. One of the best in the world. Just so malleable. <laughs> he's, he's certainly malleable in this. He gets the living shit kicked out of him left and center. <laughs> Nana Komatsu as the titular Kanako. She's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what, this is something else, man. Yeah, yeah. Did it, uh, did it make your... No, you just saw it the year it came out, didn't I you? I saw it the year it came out. It was like my top three or four of the year. Mm. I absolutely loved it. And well-deserved. Oh, man. <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and that's my number two. And I think it looks... Sorry, I think it looks... And I said it at the yeah, time. Yeah, I think it looks at... Um, the... It looks at this disconnect between, I think, youth and parents. It looks at so many things, and it's so brilliantly... The way it looks at um, the faith society puts in people in positions of trust, i.e., police, mm-hmm. parents, parents, teachers. Yep, teachers, absolutely. And how flawed uh, and how it was sort of vicious cycle that can be. And it, it's, I think, a very interesting look at society and I think human humanity. And the darker kind of cyclical nature of things. Oh yeah, I have yep. to see it. I haven't seen that one. It looks gorgeous. Yeah, yes, it's a beautiful film. Cool. Awesome. All right, my number two is. I, this has been on my list to see for ten years, and I've just got around to it this year, and that's uh, Claude Chabrol's La Boucher, The Butcher. Uh, from 1970. Uh, I think the reason I put it off is because I kind of hear 
Chabral sort of talked about. I'm not sure how to say his name exactly. Chabral. Chabral is what I say. Um, but I kind of hear him talked about as more of the mainstream um, new wave director, more of the regular sort of new wave director. When you have people that are doing sort of sort of the more surreal things like Godard or um, uh, Mal, you know, uh, or the more poignant things um, like Truffaut. I think he gets sidelined a bit, maybe, as being um, pedestrian art. But I love this movie. Um, I think that, that Jean Yana's uh, performance is unbelievable. And he, from the word go, is a nefarious character. You know, he, uh, he crosses boundaries. He talks about really inappropriate things to her, to... Um, uh, Stefan Udro's character right away um, he's telling her that his you know his father was a swine and a pig and he was worth nothing um, within two minutes of meeting this woman um, and you know in front of a, a group of children he calls a, a teacher a cow while visiting and bringing her a uh, like a leg of lamb that's wrapped like a flower like a, like a bouquet of flowers <laughs> and he brings her just this giant piece of meat. Um, That's how I do it. Yeah, it's a good way to woo the ladies, mm-hmm. is to come to their place of work and call wrapped one of their meat. colleagues a cow with wrapped meat. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's something else. But um, the whole movie, yeah, he's just he's over the line with her, and she's interested in it. She's kind of she she kind of is complicit in the in the danger of it. I think. Um, and that makes it darker. It makes it more. Uh, it makes it. It makes it feel more ominous throughout the movie, and it carries that tension throughout the movie. But it's also a beautiful movie. The locations are beautiful. The surroundings, everything is just pleasant to look at, and and shot so perfectly. Um, while you have this tension underneath of uh, you know someone's murdering women throughout the town and he struck up this friendship uh, that's that's very um, maladaptive it's a very very inappropriate sort of relationship um, I loved it yeah Chabrol's cool man he's like I think he, he kind of and I this you know rightly or wrong I don't know if this guy saw some other stuff around the same time but he kind of reminds me of Brisson with a little bit more a little bit more of a sense of humor mm-hmm. about himself uh, and about his subjects <laughs> but yeah, this film, man, I started this film, it was late at night, and I kept I kept wanting to watch it and kept forgetting to watch it, and I still haven't seen it, so i got to definitely see it now, because I have it, and it's been like countless times, uh, I've just not gotten around to it. I think you really dig it, I think it has a really, it strikes a good balance between um, the sort of horrific, like ominous things that are going on underneath the surface and the relationship that you're sort of the friendship that you're sort of watching. Um, and like I said, it's shot beautifully. There's a scene pretty early in the movie. That's just a one shot for about five minutes. Um, that's just them walking through the town and, and, um, having cigarettes and, and talking, uh, right after they sort of meet each other. Um, and it's really beautiful, and it feel it feels really compelling. You just kind of want it to go on forever, um, because you know underneath 
what he is. Um, and the fact that he's sort of masking this, you know, behavior. It's, it's interesting. Two films. Have you seen uh, Le Grange Brûlé, Burn Barnes? Burn Barnes? No, I haven't seen that one. I, I, it's on my list. It's on my uh, queue. Or um, <laughs> my number one from last year, Lil Quinquin. No, no. And Lil Quinquin's so good. So you got to check it out. You would love it. Todd, have you ever, you've not seen Lil Quinquin yet, have you? It's in my Netflix queue. I still. I, I have like, no time. Yeah, it's long, man. I, I feel like not enough people have seen. I tried to really push that on people. It was my number one last year, but not enough people saw it. It's so good. It's so so good, and it kind of. I feels very. Uh, you know, I think. I think you dig it. I think both you guys would dig it. Not that you want. Awesome. Uh, was that it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Cool. Okay, my number two um, is uh, pretty fucking. Oh gosh, a pretty. I think this film. Okay, let me just come on and say it, and then I'll just kind of try to work through as I'm talking about it. It's uh, it's Ingmar Bergman's Winter Light. Uh, yeah, Todd and I have spoken about this film. Uh-huh. Um, and I've said many, many times to anyone that would listen that as I've gotten older. Bergman's work has really resonated with me. Yeah. I didn't look at him as being very dour and, and self-serious. The more I sort of understood his background as the son of a priest, and the more I, I, I really appreciated his um, his kind of cold, unflinching look at um, people's fixation on faith and their place in the world and their relationships, um, actions and, and how all that fits into the puzzle. Um, Max von Sydow is great. I love Max von Sydow, but I feel like Gunnar Bjornstrand doesn't get enough love for being like a go-to guy for um, Bergman because everything I've seen him in, I've, I've really been pulled over with him, his performances. Uh, Sven yeah. Nyqvist, of course, shoots the film wonderfully. Ingrid Thulin, who I'm a big fan of, really big fan of I think she's she's actually a, a beauty um, she's great and yeah I mean it, it, it just think it hits on a lot of heavy stuff that uh, you see I think it might as part of his I think faith trilogy is what it's called sort of an unofficial yeah. thing but um, yeah people's existence and this this um, crisis of uh, the spiritual crisis and um, whether you subscribe to and I, I don't um, but whether you subscribe to sort of uh, the notion of faith uh, through a god or just simply faith in something I think having that crisis and when everything that you've assumed to be the, the absolute truth you begin to question that I think it, it's an earth shattering thing and yeah it's got a kind of fantastic finale though fantastic ending Perfect summation. The, the sort of storm underneath the stillness uh, mm -hmm. in his work is, is really something to see. No, oh, absolutely. Excellent. That's tight, man. 80 minutes. Yep. 80 minutes yeah. I do believe that. <laughs> yeah. I do believe that. Yeah, it's not, it's not Um 
yeah, who's more who's more dour? Brisson, oh, Brisson, Brisson is much more dour. Much. More. Holy shit! Uh, uh, the man makes. Uh, never mind. Anyway. <laughs> oh yeah. my god! Yeah, he does not like humanity at all. Um, but uh, I think that one. I think Winter Light made uh, my top thirty last year. I want to say. Where, uh, I don't recall roughly where it would have been. I honestly couldn't couldn't say. Uh, I don't think it was as high as yours, although I would say it was probably top fifteen. Um, but I, I don't know off the top of my head. Anyway, I think you're right. I, I just went back and listened to last year's episode um, before this one because I was kind of curious how many I'd written down from last year and actually watched and how much overlap there would be. Um, and there's a couple, but yeah, I think I remember you talking about Winter, Winter's Light, and it was pretty high up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, high recommend. Yeah, and like you were saying, I mean Bergman. I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a hard time getting into Bergman at all, and I don't think that he's. I don't think he. I think he's undeservedly kind of the um, the go to uh, kind of par- parody parody satire kind of guy for uh, for art house European cinema. Art house cinema. Not yeah, yeah. I totally agree that poor guy's been lumped in with that, but I, I think there. Is such an emotional honesty, mm-hmm. spiritual. I think there's just so much honesty, period, to his work. And, and that honesty yeah. is a tough yeah. thing because yeah. honesty and truth. Um, honesty m- may not really be truth, you know. Right. It's your perception of what honesty is, but I think he really does did seek to present truth and honesty and, and being very open and transparent about the stuff that he fixated on. It's like, you know, much like I think a lot of filmmakers that were successful, Fellini in a very different way, but it's one of the reasons I love him so much is what he is fixated on has always moved me and, and been things I've been fixated on. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this puts me at my number... Number five! Um, this comes from 1977 uh, from one Mr. Richard Brooks. And it is looking for Mr. Goodbar. Uh, ah, yeah. Right from the title credits. Uh, you know this, this is something special. Haven't you really? Ooh, we got to get you on this. Um, I'm looking for Mr. Goodbar. I'll, I'll just I'll zip that back up. Um, that's a bad bar. Uh, the... Uh, yeah, I mean, this is just a special movie. One of those films that uh, I don't think would be made the same or even remotely close to the same uh, today. Uh, it makes fantastic use of flashbacks and still photos. Um, Diane Keaton's a powerhouse. The whole cast is a powerhouse. It includes uh, Tom Berger, um, William Atherton, um, uh, who else? Richard Gere, your boy, Tuesday is in this. <laughs> Tuesday Weld, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, what's the dad's name? I can't remember. I can never remember his name. Uh, yeah. Um, Keith LeVar Brandon. Burton. LeVar Burton. LeVar Burton, yeah, yeah. He shows up. Uh, it's just, it's great all the way around. Uh, like I said, Keaton's a powerhouse. She she encompasses um, uh, repression and self-discovery and vulnerability uh, in the uh, the role. Um, she does this kind of thing where she fantasizes about satisfaction uh, both sexual and otherwise, and that's really uh, what drives her journey through the film. Even though, uh, you know, every man she meets is an absolute a-hole, uh, and she flings herself into this 
lifestyle that she chooses because she thinks that's what's expected of her, or at least that's the way that I took it. Uh, there's the a constant threat of violence that pervades the film, um, and it, it's one of those movies where you know you're, you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, okay, she's she's you know coming out of her shell, she's this, that, and the other thing, but then you know things always tend to go a bit sideways and dark, and it, you kind of start to back off and be like, you know, maybe you know she's not making the right choice, maybe. Uh, maybe her father was right, even though you know he's, the way that he talks, he's not. Uh, and you know this, and it's just—I think it's a really—it's a, a complex film, uh, and complex in the way that it deals with uh, this person and the whole era of the time and the way that people uh, dealt with relationships. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe even more prescient today. I don't know, but uh, it, I, it really have to be something I'd have to get in depth about. Uh, William Atherton, by the way, is a disco machine in the movie. So, <laughs> even more of a reason to uh, to go out and see this thing. A good double with Belzejour. Um, it would. Yeah, I think Belzejour is is a bit lighter uh, than this than. Uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, but yeah, no, I think we'd make a, a pretty good double with it, sure. Not that I plan on doubling them, but. <laughs> well, first ways to spend your time. That's all I got, sir. All right, number one. I think everyone in the community has seen this movie. And I somehow had not. Um, it's Bong Joon Ho's Memories of Murder in uh-huh. 2003. Um,. I, I I love this movie from start to finish, and it's it has all the hallmarks of you know um, of Bong Joon Ho's like best instincts. Uh, it's it's funny that you know where they have the uh, the scene of the of the initial crime, and everyone keeps falling down that hill as they try to walk down this embankment, and they just slapstick. Just, just basic slapstick fall down the hill one after the other, you know, every couple minutes while they're all approaching this, you know, grisly murder scene. Um, it's tense. It's um, really disturbing at times, uh, especially what happens to the um, d- the developmentally disabled man in the movie. Um, there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of grisly, tense moments, um, but there's also humor. There's the the police detective that always just kicks people, just flies through the air and kicks people constantly. Yeah. Um, which I I appreciate because it breaks up um, breaks up the um, in the intensity of the movie and what you're seeing because it's a series of un- still unsolved and in Korea, I, th- I believe the first incidents of serial murder that they at least recognized. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and because it's kind of broken by um, the humanity of humor, even even though it's, it's pretty dark humor, even when it's slapsticky, because it is police beating the shit out of everyone they come across, you know, um, in the effort to just arrest anyone. Uh, it doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter how likely it is that they did it. Um, and you kind of see the the detective who's brought in from the city, brought in from Seoul, is kind of – he's overwhelmed by it all. 
he's watching something. He's watching a group of country um, detectives who have no clue what they're doing. And he's powerless because he's just a visitor. Um, I, don't, I thought I, I just think it's uh, I think it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, and I was I was surprised by it. I thought it would be a, I thought it would be an interesting film, but it was it kind of hit on a lot of things uh, that I find enjoyable about film. And it hit on a lot of things that I find um, unpleasant about film. Um, and I was really invested in it by the end and the, the, the train sequence at the end, the train track sequence. Um, it's going to really stick with me for a while. I liked it. Yeah, good stuff. My number one's also from Asia. Um, it's one that, again, you know, kind of a long time kind of list of shamer. Uh, the film, I, I haven't seen the 1983 version, which i got to get around to, um, because I suspect uh, it's probably fantastic, based on the pedigree. But the one I'm referring to is the original 1958 Kisuke Kinoshita film, The Ballad of Nariyama. Um, you know, some films will resonate with you because of the technical merit, um, the force of will that a filmmaker... Um, has in, 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 in having their vision realized. But the thing that, that stuck with me most about this film, I've been a very deeply personal and emotional uh, viewing for me, was uh, the relationship between the son and his mother. Uh, for those that don't know, it, it's, uh, it's a kabuki uh, sort of aesthetic uh, look at a Japanese folk legend where uh, tradition says that uh, when, when, when uh, citizens reach their 70th birthday, they have to be carried to the summit of Mount Nariyama and left there to die by their, their family. Um, so it looks at the, the mother at the center of the, the story. Uh, and she's trying to ensure that as her last days are coming, and if her life, for all intents and purposes, uh, she tries to ensure that her widow, widowed son, who she has a great relationship with, has a has a, everything set up for him. And he's not useless. I mean, he's a good son. But being a, a parent, she's, she's clearly trying to ensure that she has peace of mind to know that he's going to be loved and, and taken care of. Um, beautiful film. It's it's I mean aesthetically and otherwise colorful, very like brilliantly colored. A sense of artifice. Um, especially for 1958 um, stunning stunning film um, but there's moments in this film I can't even look at the cover now without getting a lump in my throat like it, it really moved <coughs> sorry that's okay um, I have a I'm very 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 close it's probably a good thing I didn't watch it with her um, because I would have been really, like ugly crying through it and you know it's, it's just such a beautiful film and, and Japan as a country really seems to do the familial drama maybe better than anyone for my money um, yeah a high high recommend um, from me excellent I never even heard of that one yeah, I just recorded that one off of, uh, I think, TCM or something uh, recently, so should be coming up soon for me. Can't wait. Yeah, it's, it's really special. And I think um, what's crazy is Shoei Imamura remade it in 1983, and some people prefer that version. And Imamura is a filmmaker mm -hmm. I'm very fond of. Ken Ogata is in the, the role of the son. 
so y'all have to see that and ugly cry some more <laughs> um let's uh let's take a short break here we're gonna come back and we're gonna power through 11 to 20 all right guys we're gonna be right back Okay. Are we paused? Uh, we are not paused. We are live. Oh, <laughs> we're here. Um, we are, there was some tomfoolery going on with Skype, so we're just, uh, to pull back the curtain, we're just going to leave some silence between uh, segments and insert music into there. Um, so, yeah, we're back. Uh, time to get into our 11 to 20 films. And to lead things off, Hot Toddy, what's your snake eyes? Don't tell me. <sighs> It's Snake Eyes from Brian De Palma, 1990. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, it is uh, 1973, Francois Truffaut, Day for Night. Um, it's right up my alley. It's about filmmaking. Uh, it's got a quasi-documentary narrative. Um, it's filled with these little monologue uh, vignettes. It uh, Again, and I know I always make this, this, you know, I always say what it would go great paired with, like I'm a... Um, a vintner, uh, but uh, it's a nice companion to eight and a half uh, for me. And uh, you know, it's the, it's this uh, love letter to cinema. Uh, there's constant you know references to directors and, and films. Um, the cast and crew of the uh, the movie are a family. Uh, they act like a family more or less uh, in love with cinema. And you get the uh, the two beauties, uh, Jacqueline Bissett and Natalie Bay. Ba- I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. B a y e. Um, yeah, they're both uh, two beautiful little ladies and uh, doing great things in this uh, in the movie. Um, have uh, Have either of you guys seen this one? Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah, but it's uh, it just missed out on the uh, the ten spot. So, but absolutely, yeah. No, I got to get. I, I believe Criterion has uh, uh, released this. Or am I sure wrong about this? I'm gonna have to get on that if they if they did uh, get myself a copy to keep, because uh, yeah, this was just outstanding. And it, you know, like you and I have said before, uh, Truffaut is one of our preferred uh, French New Wave guys. So for sure, for sure, that's it for me. All right, my number eleven is Pastoral Hide and Seek, also called To Live and Die in the Country. Um, uh, from uh, Shuji Teriyama Um, it's an experimental art with a capital A sort of film uh, kind of a coming of age story Uh, it's a flashback on his childhood told um, uh, with a lot of surrealism it's uh, it's one of those movies I really love films that uh, create uh, a lot of artifice so you you know you're watching a film they know that you know and they're creating um, uh, sort of an experience in which the film is important, which I think is kind of what you're, you you were talking about with R100, mm-hmm. um, where the film watching um, the meta the meta aspect of that becomes as important as what's happening, um, yeah. and this is a movie about that. Um, and about the, the, the fallibility of memory. Um, uh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, it's got shades of, 
Yodorowski, um, Kenneth Anger. Uh, it's got Kabuki touches. Um, and I think that even if you know someone watched it and they were just uh, completely bored by it, skip forward and just watch the last 10 minutes. And I, I just I don't see how uh, someone wouldn't like the last 10 minutes of this movie. Uh, it's fantastic. Cool. Will, you said you've seen it? Yeah. What do you think of it? Uh, yeah, Perfect. I dug it, man. Um, well, what year was it? Like seven, like seventy-eight, seventy-four, seventy-four. Yeah, I I was able to snag some stuff. Probably, well, I don't know, a couple of years ago now. Um, there was a few kind of mid seventies to early eighties Japanese films that I grabbed that uh, that I really dug. This one, and then there was. I think I think I think you've seen this under the blossoming cherry trees. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's also pretty cool. Okay. So. Is that Teriyama too? Do you know same guy? I know he did. He did one that's uh, pretty controversial and pretty insane called Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Um, that's pretty wild. Um, uh, Masahiro Shinoda. Okay. Who did like Samurai Spy and Hamiko, which is kind of cool. Sure. Okay. Cool. That's my number eleven. Nice. I'm gonna break out of the Criterion Ghetto, not Ghetto, but <laughs> the Palace. Palace. Yeah. Um, this one, this gets a little more diverse. Um, this one, I don't know. I, I don't know if I was folding laundry or I just, I don't know. I just, I might have been doing something initially when I started to put it on. And um, it's got a, it's it's talks about documentary filmmaking in the way that we spoke of earlier, where it allows you uh, to simply observe um, and kind of take in what you need to take in and, and just just look at a, a, a person and examine their life um, without intruding too much. And it's it's um, Bill it's a newer one of the newer films on my list. It's uh, Bill Cunningham, New York. Yeah, cool. I don't know this. That's pretty cool, man. Um, you know, relatively short, 84 minutes long. Uh, he was, Bill Cunningham was one of the photographers for the New York Times for decades and decades. Fashion yeah. photographer. With very much, um, uh, there was no sense of, of importance or vanity or delusion about about the none of the sort of absurd things that the industry is, is characterized or for or known for. Um, just a very low key guy. He wouldn't even go to any of the awards dinners because he just he didn't want to be part of the, the absurdity of it. He just he would go and shoot people, you know, out in the streets of New York uh, in their raincoats or whatever. And it just it looks at his life, which I think that. Um, Ingmar Bergman would be fascinated with him, actually. Um, I think he was also a son of a priest. Lived, I want to say, like, for the most part, like a celibate life. I think he had some... They barely touch on this, and I think it was probably because Cunningham was a very private man, but... Um, I think that he was celibate most of his life, and he was kind of focused on his love, which was photography. Um, and, yeah, just he had such a knack for shooting the city and the people of the city... Um, he'd ride a Schwinn bicycle everywhere, and just very low-key, very simply put documentary, but I really was fascinated with 
with him, and I really, I think, sadly, he died like a few weeks after I saw it. Hmm. Yeah, I think he died very recently. Yeah. In the last year, too. Yeah, and he, he was one of these guys, like, through just shooting people that he thought were interesting, and, and he didn't um, didn't get roped into shooting sort of, quote-unquote, high fashion. He would shoot, like, at, like, tranny, like, transvestite net, uh, nightclubs, or gay nightclubs. He would shoot um, Puerto Rican neighborhoods, some of the, the kids in the neighborhood. Just very, very, he democratized style, I think, for a lot of people. Right. Great. Alrighty. Uh, number 12 is uh, from 2014 from the folks at Astron 6. It is the editor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Talk about switching gears. Um, this thing, it does a fantastic job capturing the vibe of uh, Gialli, the look and the tone. Uh, it's got a great score. Uh, again, it's got that meta angle that I love, you know, the guys making films and all that. There's uh, tons of naked people just wandering through the background in this thing. Um, I think when I when I initially saw it, one of my comments was that I think they got every good-looking woman in uh, Canada and got them to take their clothes off for this thing because there's a lot of them in this. Um, Adam Brooks, who was uh, plays the lead, uh, carries a heavy uh, Murley feel. Uh, both in his mustache and his expressionlessness. He's almost Jeff Blinn, though. Who's like <laughs> narrow. He talks of his of, uh, Merrily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff Blinn? Yeah, Jeff Blinn. Jeff Blinn, yeah. Not the ELO Jeff Blinn, though. No, Jeff Blinn. Boom. no the, uh, the hard-boiled yes. egg-eating yes, Jeff yes, Blinn. Yes. Exactly, not Jeff Blinn. Yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, so yeah, no, I, I was really, I liked Astron 6, I liked all of their stuff. This, to me, was the first one that uh, really felt like a complete, um, like they got everything right in this one. Uh, the other stuff, is, you know, they, they they would be a little bit hit, a little bit missed, but uh, this one really kind of, it hit every sweet spot, and it hit, you know, no perfect, uh, as both a send-up and like a, a, a love letter to, uh, to this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, big, big, uh, big, big fun. I agree. I went into that a little, a little cynical. I went into it like, oh, this is going to be like trauma, which is not something I really enjoy at all. Um, and it worked for me. I was laughing, and 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 every reference was uh, was pretty on point. Well, I don't think that I don't think I that uh, all time. I don't think that uh, Astronaut Six has ever been quite trauma esque. No. Uh, well, at least not full bore uh, trauma. But um, trauma early on. For the, I, they did, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking about you know just how they are uh, in general, like sure. how their their style is. So, but yeah, no, I I, I love uh, I love checking out what they whatever they do next. Yeah, they seem to be getting better and better. So yeah, yeah. That's all I got. All right, my number 12 is from one of my favorite directors and one of his earlier efforts that I can't believe I'd never seen. Um, and that's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown <laughs> by Pedro Maldivar. Um Hilarious from front to back. Um, Antonio Banderas is unbelievable. <laughs> um, 
What's her? Uh, Carmen Mara? Yeah, Is that Carmen her name? Mara, man. Uh, wow, I have such a crush on her. Yeah, me too, man. She's she's great. She's great. Um, I don't even know what to say about the movie because it's a with comedies, it's so hard to I think, especially if you if you know a Motivar's work, all of his usual tendencies are here. You know, and that, it's it's loud, it's boisterous, it's uh, dark, and um, I mean one of the one of the main characters tries to throw herself off a roof within the first ten minutes of the movie, um, and then it's made light of over and over again. A character drinks a tranquilizer filled Gestapo. Uh, Gestapo. Oh God, the Gestapo. <laughs> the Gestapo yeah. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the Gestapo. Um, Anyway, fantastic. I was going to ask you, isn't this the film with the gazpacho in it? And it's funny because this movie inspired me to make my own gazpacho. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I make blender gazpacho. It's very easy. Yeah? I don't tranquilize it, though. You don't, you know, no barbiturates in there? No mescaline for you. No mescaline. No, none for me. (laughs) Maybe 15 years ago, but I'm having fun at a party. But... uh, yeah, my kids, they're not too tough on... Because gazpacho is meant to be like a refreshing cold soup you eat in like the summertime. Yeah. Which is kind of an alien concept for us as in Canada. Like, yeah, if we're eating soup, it's got to be hot. I think for most people, right? And, sure. You know, but uh, I liked it both ways, hot and cold. I gotta mix, I've been meaning to make some more gazpacho for a while, so... There you go. Yeah, that's a fun one, man. Isn't the yeah, really, at the I, airport, I think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the the... Yeah, I mean the whole, you know, that's the confrontation with Ivan. Yes, the the shit kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the whole movie, I, it it has such a fun energy that I found myself laughing even when I wasn't sure why I was laughing at every line um, because I I was I was so indoctrinated by the film uh, and its energy and how fun and wacky and oddball it is that. Um, I, I just had a great time with it. It's fantastic. Have you seen Matador? Beautiful movie. Either one of you guys? No, I oh, I Matador. love Matador. Yeah, it's easily oh, top three Almodovar for me. Get on that for it. It's like uh, Almodovar's tribute to like Jali. Speaking of tributes to Jali. Yeah. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, he has so many, so many films, and I've seen, I feel like, half of them. And, oh, yeah. uh, That's the thing. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing in some ways. It is, yeah. Bad news thing. Exactly. Um, my number 12 is made by uh, an auteur as well. Um, I hadn't seen any of his films until this year. A bit of shame to say. Uh, I'm going to synopsize it before I mention this auteur's film name. An edgy action thriller set in Las Vegas during a terrorist attack. A brilliant computer loner takes control of the city and the attack as he fights with his fits of overwhelming depression and obsessions with love and death. This is Neil Breen's Double Down. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this film is so <laughs> amazing. Let's be honest. That's uh, my favorite one. It's so my favorite. Of his I, it was the first Breen I ever saw. I was like, man, how, what have I been doing all these years? <laughs> Yeah. He's got like the laptops in his like car and Oh my god. This God bless Neil Breen. You know when you get a filmmaker who 
they have no apprehension or filter or they don't give pause to the haters. Yeah. <laughs> they have a purity of vision um, that may outstrip budget and um, they don't maybe stick the landing the way that they think they stick the landing, but that makes for wonderful film for me. And I really enjoyed this film a lot. Like I really love it. I'd love, yeah. I'd love to review this film on the show, man. It's so good. Oh man. Yeah, did you see Faithful Findings? I still haven't seen any other Breen. Oh, the weirdest thing is that it get it goes down in technical quality as you go forward. Uh, it goes down in ability, um, but in a beautiful way. I, it almost feels like you're watching like a David Mamet with a head wound sort of movie, the way the dialogue is, um, so stagey, and they're just it's just exposition, exposition, exposition between every character. Um, it becomes art somehow. Um, yeah, it does. It, it sort of crosses over, doesn't it? Like yeah. Yeah, Todd, we gotta we guys, we gotta review some man. <laughs> Doing the world a disservice. I have never seen any brain, so I am uh, I am here. I'm here now. Now? I'm oh, here no, now. It's not a question. Yeah. It's a statement, sorry. Uh yeah, it's a statement. It's he plays like a Jesus Christ like alien who comes to teach humans the error of their ways. Um he just <laughs> He just meets all the scum of the earth in Las Vegas and tries to tell them how. Uh, <laughs> try to tries to tell, which is where he's from. He's like a Vegas real estate realtor, architect right? guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this and I love the cover for I Am Here Now because there's like this like low rent Franklin Jella a Skeletor dude like yeah <laughs> <laughs> some chicken lingerie. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Wait, did you say tap. chicken lingerie or chick in lingerie? Lingerie. <laughs> okay, got it. A woman in a in a chicken covered lingerie. It's just got, chicken skin. Just, <laughs> it's just uh, yeah, it's just chicken beaks. Um, yeah. I I actually have had some email conversations with Neil Breen, um, trying to get copies of his movies. Does he, um, he have a thing where like you have to like he screens them and then he does a tour and then that's kind of it or yeah. Yeah, and he's like, that was my, I sent him a thing about I'm here now, right after Faithful Findings came out, I think. Um, he has an email account that's like, Neil Breen 306 at AOL. I think it's seriously an AOL.com. <laughs> um, uh, I have to, I'll send it to you off, off uh, yes. the show. But um, he, he basically sent a very curt, cold email back that said, that was my last movie. Um, I, I've moved on. I'm not putting. I'm not going to sell that movie anymore. Um, luckily, I bought the last copy of Double Down off Amazon. Don't like the cold red guy. <laughs> yeah, that's the past. We've moved forward. Like, well, div- man, DVDs are. Uh, they're kind of a. You know, kind of a, a, a long-lasting thing. Like you can keep selling your DVDs. That's it's right. Like, like, the movies are permanent. Number. Yeah. I. For sure, for sure. I mean, we're talking about it on this list, not for nothing, you know. It's uh, certainly, I, th- I think, I think there's a difference between laughing at something and enjoying getting to see uh, a vanity project, somebody's vision. Vanity project, um, and, yes. 
they're the best kind. Like, um, um, what's that one? Um, with the shimmy shake or whatever. Road to Revenge. Road to Revenge. Man, vanity oh, projects man. like this and that are the greatest gift. They really are. <laughs> um, all right, that's all I got to say for now. About Neil Bryn, Neil Bryn, Neil Breen. Neil Breen. <laughs> down on some Breen coverage in the very near future. Man, we gotta maybe do that with um, a film that I think gets really unfairly maligned because of one unfortunately edited scene. Uh, Tough guys don't dance. Okay. Tough guy. I don't know that one. It's uh, Norman Mailer. Yep. It's it's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. Ryan O'Neill got hung out to dry in the worst possible way. Oh, is that the Oh God? Yes. yes. Okay. Oh, okay. Man. Oh God. Oh man. Oh God. Yeah. yeah. I've only seen Maidenstone um, of his movies, of Norman Mailer's movies, yeah. where Rip Torn hits him in the head with a fucking hammer. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen it. I don't think I. Have. Mm. It's all right, but uh, you get to see Rip Torn hit Norman Mailer in the head with a hammer, so that's always good. <laughs> but he really did in real life. I mean, he hit him in the head with a hammer. So. Ouch. So. Ouch. <laughs> uh, brings us to 13. Uh, it is 1973. Richard Serafian's Lolly Madonna XXX. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I really like this one, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's basically... Uh, a take on the Hatfields versus the McCoys, uh, more or less. Uh, it's got a great cast and locales, uh, including uh, who? She's uh, Ed Lauder, um, uh, Rod Steiger. Um, was it Robert Ryan in this? He's yeah, the he's other the father, right? Yeah, he's the father. Mm-hmm, yep. of the other, the other family. Um, Jeff Bridge, or not? Yeah, Jeff Bridges. Yep. Uh, I'm just going off the top of my head. Um, what was her name that was uh, married to Snake Plissken? Uh, uh, Season Hubley. Season Hubley, yes. Um, she's in it. Uh, it was just great, Busey. great cast. Busey, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little Scott Busey Wilson. action with long hair. Scott Wilson. Yeah, Scott Wilson. Randy Quaid. Yep. Um, you know, Ed Lauder really goes for it, uh, prancing around in the lingerie, dressing himself up and, uh, you know, whoring up, whoring up his face with the makeup. Um <laughs> You'd uh, it's one of those it's one of those uh, stories that the setup even when you think about it you think to yourself that uh, you'd have to be pretty simple to fall for uh, how this film is set up but it, it works for it works enough for the story and it works enough for uh, for what we need to get us into it um, it does a very nice job uh, delineating a lot of different characters and they all kind of get their moments uh, in the film. And that goes pretty much almost across the board. I can't think of anybody that doesn't have some uh, some moment to, to shine a little bit. And uh, there's lots of gut punching in this movie. A lot of people get gut punched. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, it, it's really it's you know it's a it's a powerful small film uh, that you know you really don't hear a hell of a lot about. I, again, I think this is one that uh, you guys covered on the show uh, a little while back. And uh, yeah, it's definitely. Worth the time to uh, to seek it out. That's, yeah, that's great. Lolly Madonna. I always want to say Lolly Madonna at triple X, but that would be wrong. You're right. You're right. <laughs> um, so my 13, it's strange that I just brought this guy up. Uh, this is the first film he directed. Um, it's House of Games by David Mamet. Huh. Very um, nice. 
So I've seen a handful of Mammoth films, but this is my first time seeing this one. I think because I thought I knew what it was for a long time. Um, I'd seen references to it and seen clips out of it. And I, you know, when you kind of, kind of have some relationship with a movie where you're like, okay, I know what that is. I get it. I've seen enough little things. You just kind of gloss over it. Um, or at least I do, but what a great movie. Um, I think it does some really interesting, like intentional things where at the beginning, the the psychiatrist is, uh, Everything's more stilted when she's talking, you know, the way Mamet writes um, dialogue always feels so unreal. You kind of have to work your way into it. Yeah, Mamet speak. Um, But as she gets further into the con, the world of the con, the movie starts to feel more naturalistic, almost as though you're watching – you're kind of watching yourself break down and buy into the con of the movie. Um, so that by the time you're in that hotel room with JT Walsh and the whole, how that goes down, it mm-hmm. feels like you've, you've, whether by, whether by being sort of held captive by mammoth speak or because it actively sort of changes the way it, um, the way it propels the story, you feel like it's really naturalistic. It's not stilted and you you don't notice it anymore. You know, um, the way that the way it starts out. Uh, and the way that the dialogue is um, feels at the beginning of the movie, it really changes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now this one, uh, House of Games, um, really kind of gets uh, lumped in the bottom sort of of Mammoth's movies, uh, and undeservedly so. I think it's it is you know a solid. Uh, it's all a little twisty-turny kind of thing, uh, and psychological um, thriller, I guess you could call it, although it would be more like a, a psycho-crime movie, mm-hmm. sort of. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really good. It's one of those ones that you know you can go back to and revisit, and you're, you start pulling apart all the, the way that the, the whole thing is kind of – you start looking for the clues, right? Kind of like usual suspects. Yeah. You're, you're sitting there, you're looking for the clues – after a while, or you just start to pick up on the clues, and it's still entertaining to watch it go, you know, throughout. And Joe Mantegna is uh, is great as always, and you know, you get Ricky Jay and all the other guys in there. Right. So. Can't yeah, go the, wrong. I mean, that, the the poker scene in the House yeah. of Games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and to write a protagonist who is a psychiatrist, who's someone that spends her time, um, noticing the behaviors of others. Yeah. Uh, and then for her to catch them in the con and then that, the way that sort of unravels as it goes forward is really interesting. You couldn't set up a better um, sort of protagonist against what, uh, you know, their machinations are. It's it's uh, it's pretty perfectly done. It's nice and tight and uh, fun. And I I, um, I, would, I would find it hard to believe anybody would hate it, but maybe. No, I don't, think, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it's hateable, but. Right. I still have to see it. It's another one I've keep circling back to, and just for some reason, um, haven't uh, haven't seen. Yeah, I think it's really really watchable. Um, really easy easy watch and uh, fun and interesting little movie. Lots of man regulars for sure. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. I'm at number thirteen. Film uh, I had. 
I, I, you know, trying to watch stuff with my kids that either I was a fan of or I didn't see when I was their age or maybe a couple years older. It was in that weird age where you kind of ignore certain things because you're too old for it. I really want to push this film on everyone because I think it is so much fun. And it's a shame that it bombed. Gotcha. 1996 is Simon Windsor directed Billy Zane starring The Phantom. Nice. Man, this film is so much fun. Yeah. It, oh, it's just criminal that it has a reputation for being such a like a turd that tanked. It knows. No, it, it totally gets it. Yeah, exactly. It totally gets it. Billy Zane is wonderful as The Phantom. He's to- he, he every lead actor in this film totally gets it. Zane gets it. Catherine Zeta-Jones is so much fun as kind of the bad girl, good girl. Treat Williams is just chewing scenery up. Christy Swanson's a lot of fun. James Remar, Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa. Um, oh, it's just Samantha Eggers in it. Catherine Gouhan. I mean, it's got a fun cast. It's got great production values. It's just, it's so sad that this film is I really love this film. I had a, I just, it needs a great Blu-ray release. I want this yeah. poster now. And Billy Zane, I got, got to give it up, man. That guy worked his ass off to rock that purple suit, and he looks good. <laughs> good on him, man. That's, yeah, I tell you what, I put on a few, I put on a kick-ass costume a couple years ago. Thought I was hot shit, and I looked so terrible in it. <laughs> wearing this, I look fucking horrible right now. So he fills out the purple suit well. I want to get a, a phantom skull ring, man. Like, I love this film. Yeah, no, it really, it really is a lot of fun. That that whole little uh, niche that came out around that time, the Shadow, shadow the Rocketeer, yeah, the Rocketeer, yeah, Dick Tracy, mm-hmm. and uh, they're they're not really. I mean, I, all of them are fun, fun enough for what they are. And this one, I think, is is definitely towards the top of the heap. Um, so yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think, uh, yeah, I reviewed this on the blog uh, a while back too. So I think it might even have been earlier this year. I don't remember, but yeah, definitely. Uh, I would, uh, agree with your recommendation. Everybody needs to get on the, the Phantom. I haven't seen that one in 20 years, but I remember really, really liking it when it came out. It's so good. It's so fun. Yeah. 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 Uh, Number 14 for me, 1960, Mr. Billy Wilder bringing us the apartment. Yeah. Um, oh, man. This is a good one. Uh, Wilder's uh, signature humor is on display here, um, but there's a sad undercurrent to it uh, in this one. Uh, it is, for me, I think it's a, a romance for hopeless romantics. Um it deals with the sexual politics in the office, and the office is, it's the office itself is shot extraordinarily well. Um, it's got a lot of uh, low angles and, and things like that. Uh, Shirley MacLaine is in this. Uh, she has a naked sincerity uh, to everything that she does, I think, and she and uh, Jack Lemmon play very well off each other. Uh, but then again, Jack Lemmon plays well off just about anybody, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, Fred McMurray shows up, and he's a real sack of shit in this one. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's just it, – it's one of those movies where uh, you just kind of give yourself over to it. And I, I have yet to be disappointed by a Billy Wilder movie. This is no exception. Um, I mean, I might like them you know, more or less to some degree. 
but uh, yeah, the man knew his shit inside and out, and this is just another great example of that. Um, I can't think of too much else to say about it. It's uh, yeah, it's a good one. And if you're interested in uh, Billy Wilder, this is a good place to start. It's as good a place as any. Yeah, that's absolutely that's a great one. I really love that movie. Fred McMurray is great and everything. Oh yeah. Um, every time he shows up, and he's one of those guys who, you know, I mean, he did what My Three Sons yep. or whatever. So yep. I think people think of him as My Three Sons yeah. whenever they, you know, well, if they don't it. think of him for that. They think of him for Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, which isn't as damning because that's a great movie, but I feel yeah. like my three sons people kind of pigeonhole him a little yeah. bit. Well, that's, um, that's kind of the TV curse, right? It's, you know, right. once you get on there, sure. That's what you're known for the rest of your life. Sure. Don't get me wrong, I, I like my three sons. No, oh, I got no problem with it. I used but, to watch it. But it, but it does. It feels like people, you know, sort of like, oh, that TV guy on that quaint <laughs> show yeah. that came on Nickelodeon. My parents watched it, you know. That pipe smoking um, dad guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, all right. My number fourteen is a noir film, sort of a noir film, I would say, um, with Robert Mitchum, Judy Greer, and Kirk Douglas. Out of the past. Outstanding. From nineteen forty-seven. I um. I don't know how I'd miss this one. I I'm not sure. Uh, uh, what I was what I was doing with my life, not watching this, but uh, yeah, I try to see everything Mitchum has done. He's fantastic, and I can't imagine that this isn't um, in some way an inspiration for History of Violence, um, the Cronenberg film. Uh, yeah, yeah. In the sense that he's you know he's kind of trying to go about his life. And then he gets sort of sucked back into his past. Um, and they, they find him and they basically bring him back to his boss who he he betrayed. Um, and you don't know to what level Kirk Douglas knows that, um, which is unclear for a big part of the movie is how much Kirk Douglas knows versus how much you know. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's at the beginning, I think, it feels like what you expect out of a 40s movie or what people who maybe don't watch 40s movies expect in some way is that it's very sharp back and forth. You know, it's like, you know, it's just that quick, snappy dialogue. Everybody's real, you know, real sharp and real snappy. Um, but it's but it settles down a little bit after that initial scene. And, and uh, Mitchum's great. Kirk Douglas is a fucking piece of shit. And uh, he... He plays it really well. He's, he's just a calm, uh, creepy asshole. Um, I don't have much more to say about it. It's fantastic. It's great. I feel like yeah. I've said fantastic uh, upwards of a thousand times. That's so okay. Turn this into a drinking stuff. game. Yeah, Out of the Past is, is easily in the tops uh, as far as film noir go for me. I think for most people it is, but... Yeah, yeah it's up so. there, there. Yeah, and I tried to do more film noir. You gotta know, love the you gotta love the bromance between uh, Douglas and Mitchum too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Douglas really likes, even though he's betrayed him, he trusts him. Yeah. Uh, yep. Because he he likes the cut of uh, Mitchum's jib. You know, yep. it's just all there is to all there is to the relationship is like, you're a, you don't like me, but I like you because uh, the kind of guy you are. 
Yeah. Um, and and uh, there's something really charming about that. Mm-hmm. A I principled agree. gangster. Yes. Uh, okay, my number 14 is along here. Someone's entering a haunted house, it would appear. Um, is... 1989, it was one of the last sort of really well-loved uh, Girls with Guns films from Hong Kong that I had seen. And, uh, you know, can't see them all. And this was Sha Shu Tian Shi, a.k.a. Killer Angels. A lot of fun, man. Nice. A lot of fun. This isn't the same as Midnight Angels, right? Is this the same one? Okay, okay. Okay. I think the other title for that one is Iron Angels. So and there's I don't... also Angels with Iron Fists. There's a lot of them. Mm, yeah. Uh, no, I see Ultra Force, Extreme Vengeance, Killing Angels. Okay. Yeah, but uh, Gordon Liu kind of playing a little bit of a different role in this one. I think I remember he has like full head of hair and a mustache or something in this. Um, Moon Lee, of course, she's great. Uh, yeah. Karyan Long. Uh, it's it's a solid... I mean, you know, Ingman Tat. Uh, Tony Liu uh, is in it. Uh, no Yukari Oshima in this one? No, there's not. Um, but, uh, yeah, this one's good, man. It's... Um, uh, Moon goes undercover as a nightclub singer to try to bust a slave trafficking ring. So it's... Uh, yeah, and, and uh, his bodyguard is Gordon Lowen. I think he sings to her. He does, or he does something when he's walking her out one day. That is a different side of Gordon. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you get what you get with um, with uh, girls with guns films from Hong Kong in that era. But this one was a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I, that's a, a, a little niche that I've been meaning to get more into. Uh, and I, you know, I kind of did with the Golden Queen's Commando and oh, stuff yeah, like yeah. that, uh, and Angel Terminators too. Um, you know, a couple others, but uh, it's one of those things where you know you don't really. It's it's kind of difficult to find things because well, it's difficult to find things that are worth the time um, because you know not a lot of people really go talking about it. Yeah. And you don't really. It's really then they tend to become you know hard to find just in general, sure. uh, except from maybe YouTube and really really bad uh, versions. But uh, but yeah, no, cool man. Uh, brings us to number 15 for me 2009 for Mr. Yorgos Lanthimos it is called Dog Tooth yeah, yeah. Uh, this guy is really knocking them out of the park um, and this was just I, this was one of those movies where I was a little bit you know, nervous about getting into it because it could go any way. It could go either way with this one, um, but I, I just wound up loving it. It's uh, it's kind of like um, M Night Shyamalan's uh, The Village, but without the monsters. Um, and he has this thing. Lanthimos has this thing where you know his dialogue is all very simple interrogatives and declaratives, and people are like blank. Um, the uh, you know the real world uh, creeps in at the seams of this thing, but uh, even there, people are you know I mean like I said they're blanks. But everybody just has this sort of affectless uh, disposition about them. Um, 
there's uh, it's it's kind of a, a variation on Plato's the cave where you know the people sit yeah. in the cave with the fire and all they see is the shadows. They think that that's what's you know they don't know what to make of the world when they turn around. Right. Um, and that's what this you know more or less is. Uh, the the dad is perverse. He's a control freak. Uh, he's an oppressive repressive force. Uh, for those who don't know, the, the movie's about this uh, this guy who has his family out in the country, and uh, as far as they're concerned, as far as the family is concerned uh the outside world doesn't exist except for what he allows them to see and what he makes up uh about the real world to keep them under his control um he's trying to protect his children but he's actually hurting them obviously uh the setup in and of itself you know points to that um you get some very dark shit going on uh especially with the oldest daughter uh and especially towards the back end and uh, you know it gets some. There's some moments in this that are pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, like the the VCR uh, uh, scene uh, when he discovers that the one daughter was uh, watching movies on uh, on VHS. And that's watching the, Rambo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, you know, it, it, you know, they're learning from movies. Um, yeah. Which is just, <laughs> I'm sure we've all done it, but at the same time. It's not uh, not the best thing to only learn from. Clearly, uh, right? But yeah, no. This really, this really, really surprised me. If I'm not mistaken, this is the same fellow who did uh, the Lobster, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I was yeah. going to ask you, which what, I just what? saw, which I just saw this year, uh, not too long ago. I loved it. Yeah, me too. I thought it was great. Me too. This guy is really, you know, if um, he does that that thing, I mean, like I said, I don't know if this is a constant in his films because these are the only two that I've seen that I'm aware of. But if that's uh, a constant thing where you know, the characters are all just like, hey, how are you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Right. You know, it's that kind of uh, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Personality. Uh, even though these people do have personalities and they have things going on in their heads, uh, the way that they present themselves is always just very kind of uh, emotionless. And it's almost like they're, they're uh, struggling to be people. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or they don't and know the how lobster. to be people. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and the lobster is like a very extreme version of that, where everyone's trying to please someone else mm-hmm. to, in order to like escape a horrible fate mm-hmm. um, of being turned to an animal. So you get ex- you know insane exchanges, like Colin Farrell kind of having to check himself uh, with the heartless woman. Yeah. Um, where he's like, I hope she, uh, I hope she dies soon. I mean, I mm-hmm. hope she dies slowly. But I need to take a nap because I've been yeah. playing golf all day, and um, I would hate to hear a young woman screaming um, mm-hmm. uh, so slowly. You know, it's like he's trying to figure out what order of words he can put together, what sentiment he can put together to sell her on him, to yeah. become her, you know. Her, uh, and, uh, her mate or her couple or – what do they call it? What do right. they say when the, they, they are a good couple or they're uh... – Ah, I don't fried right now, so yeah. But uh, but yeah, no. Uh, I, I absolutely uh, I absolutely agree with you. I like this guy. I like this director. Did you see Alps? Uh, that's the only one I haven't seen. Uh, I have not. Cool. Not yet. Well, you guys seen Shadow um, yet? Uh, no. Really no, but <laughs> really good. <laughs> yeah, you just caught oh, that one recently, yeah. didn't you? Will? Nice, nice, nice. Very That's cool. all I got on Dogtooth. All right, my number fifteen. Um, 
mirrors Will's last pick. It's a Girls with Gun movie with Moon Lee um, called Devil Hunters from 1989. Um, it's essentially a mob boss um, uh, who is kind of surrounded by the police and his own uh, his own gang. Um, but it is just it's 85 minutes maybe of just propulsive action. Um, the number of machine gun fights is unbelievable. Um, there's a 15 minute machine gun fight. That's un- unreal. Um, and people, I imagine the audition process for a movie like this is, uh, the director just being like, Hey, are you willing to jump off of uh, some 50 feet high? And they're like, yeah, I'll do that. Like, all right, you're hired that because that happens five or six times. Um, the uh, the amusement park scene at the beginning is is um, just nonstop, just uh, 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 amazing movie. Um, it's up there for me. I think it belongs in the same uh, you know uh, the same conversation as she shoots straight and uh, Iron Angels and some of the some of the more talked about ones uh, i think i first watched this one um uh because of the cult of muscle review they spoke quite highly of it um and it does not disappoint it's great yeah i think i, I think i got this one off of youtube uh, a little while ago i haven't gotten around to it yet though it's a good co- it's a good copy on youtube um yeah 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 all right, beauty. Uh, my number 15 was a pleasant, pleasant, pleasant surprise for me. I talked to it about. I talked about it with you, Todd. It's uh, 1976. Ultimo Deseo or Leon Klimovsky's The People Who Own the Dark. Ah, oh, cool, cool, cool film, man. Really cool. Um, I had a lot, lot to say about it when I'd first seen it. Feels a little bit Richard Matheson, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit eyes wide shut. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just was. I mean, I've seen a you know handful or so of Klamovsky's films, and always been pretty impressed. Um, I'd heard this was less of. Uh, it wasn't really. Um, um, Mr. Nashi's kind of power hour, like it was very much an ensemble. And, uh, yeah, for those that haven't seen it, it's about a group of rich uh, people and military officers who are having an orgy in a castle <laughs> when, you know, bomb drops or something happens, and they go to get help and find out that everyone else that they come across has been blinded by whatever has happened. And, uh, yeah, shit gets, uh, shit goes pretty pear There's an actress in the actress in this, Nadiuska. She was German, and she worked in Spain. She was married to Fernando Montalban. I don't know who, who Fernando Montalban. Ricardo. Ricardo. It's not. It's maybe it's Ricardo's brother. Uh, maybe. Let me see. <laughs> Montalban. Oh, yeah, maybe. Anyway, Nadiuska is gorgeous. Absolutely breathtaking. And this is a this is a really cool film, man. Like, <clears throat> it's eerie. Um, it it says some interesting things. Um, about the condition and the situation they're in and human nature. Uh, it's kind of like an extended Twilight Zone episode. Uh, really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice, nice. Cool. 
Uh, let's see. Number 16. Uh, 1975 Arthur Penn's Night Moves, um, ah, which great. Uh, again, this is yeah another one that uh, just recently uh, the guys at Cult of Muscle uh, covered it. Uh, you know, almost a week after I saw it. Uh, so nice little bit of kismet there. Um, it's uh, it's uh, kind of neo noir, uh, loaded with this odd, almost non sequitur dialogue. Um, and I think that goes to show, uh, goes to illustrate um, this world where uh, truth is elusive, paranoia has taken over our lives. Uh, you got a great cast, including uh, Jennifer Warren, uh, obviously Gene Hackman, um, a very, very young Melanie Griffith. Uh, and all of them have a very easygoing rapport going on. Uh, it's not a traditional. Uh, detective story by any means uh, I think if you go into it expecting something along the lines of um, like uh, the Rockford Files or Bullet or something along that line you're going to be disappointed with it because it's not really about uh, it's not really about the mystery uh, even though there is one at the center of it uh, it's more about the uh, the character and uh, and the world that he's living in the world that you know that by extension that we're living in uh, and everything that's happening at that point in time, um, and it's just solid. It's solid, uh, solid from stem to stern. Uh, damn good, uh, damn good movie, and a nice little, uh, nice little notch in Mr. Penn's belt, Mr. Penn's uh, six shooter there. And what a great final shot! Yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta love it. Yeah, that's a, that's great. It's a great one. Um, I haven't seen it in a while. I know it's it's been making the rounds again, and uh, that's kind of my wheelhouse. I was kind of trying to avoid that stuff because that's my go-to is the 70s sort of crime. Well, I think it just recently got Blu-ray, or did it not? Is it just one of those things that just kind of popped up again? I I'm not I sure. Know. I, I know yeah. I got it off. Of, again, it's another one of those ones that I got off of, like, Turner Classic Movies, so... Yeah, it's one I have to revisit. It's been, it's been a few years uh, since I've seen it, but... Um, I love that one. Um, my number 16 was recommended by uh, uh, Joe Dante on Leonard Malton's podcast. Um, is one of his favorites, and I love Joe Dante, so um, I checked it out. It's called The Big Clock from 1948. Oh, okay. Glenn Ford, right? Uh, no, it's Ray Milland. Oh, Malone. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray Milland. Or no, the... I was, yeah, I was thinking of something else with... Uh... Glenn Ford. I don't know what the hell I was talking about. Um, it's like- Ray, Ray Milland and Charles Lawton, which Charles Lawton just elevates yeah. any any movie. He's anything he's in. I just you know I, I, I'm, he's magnetic. Um, but yeah, it's basically a man who's about to go on vacation. He works too much uh, for this publishing magnate that's kind of a William Randolph Hearst sort of character uh, named Janoth. Um, which is a very nefarious-sounding name, uh, played by Charles Lawton. Um, and he's about to go on vacation with his family, uh, and somebody gets murdered, and he is entangled in it. Um, so he has to kind of put things straight before he can um, completely excise himself from the situation. Um, it's it's a weird – it's a totally weird film because it's really funny um, – 
and really sort of uh, madcap at times. There's lots of little set pieces that are jokey. Um, it's not quite a noir film, um, especially because it's not it's not cynical. It's not dark, um, even though the the, the the central plot is. Um, Ray Milan's really good in it. Charles Lawton, of course, is is fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's kind of an allegory of uh, of the rat race, um, of people being too concerned with work that they let everything else fall fall to the wayside. Um, and he sort of starts to realize that he's been wasting his life despite um, um, despite his best intentions. And uh, one last thing kind of keeps him embroiled in the uh, in the world he wants to escape. So really great oh. alright nice um so my next one to really to truthfully shift gears here completely a very pleasant surprise for me why my wife picked this film for one of our movie nights um you're gonna see a more kind of kids films here at the back half of my list um but this one was such a pleasant surprise, and I really want to get the word out in case people haven't seen it. Um, late, late, late cycle Disney film, 2009's The Princess and the Frog. Uh, that's a good one. Man. I like that, too. Yeah, I really love it. It's such a breath of fresh air to change the setting, uh, for it to be an African-American, uh, quote-unquote, princess. Um, the, the music's wonderful. Um, you have Keith David. Um, I think he does uh, Baron Samiti, doesn't he? Um or something comparable. No, Dr. Facilier, I think his name is. Um, the, my only uh, my only gripe is I don't really like the voice work of the, the male lead who plays Prince Naveen. I find him to be a bit kind of bland, but uh, yeah, Terrence Howard. John Goodman's fantastic in it as Big Daddy LaBeouf. Um, yeah, just beautiful hand. I think it was the last hand-drawn film that, if, if I remember correctly... Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a return to form for Disney, I think. It's so so different, I think, than what they've been doing for the last few years before that. Probably, um, yeah, it feels like a real, like you said, a real return to form, and it like, feels like about 20 or 30 years prior. Like it's, it's Yeah. Yeah, really good stuff, man. This this one, like I said to my wife the other day, I said, man, I really loved it, Princess and the Frog. Thanks again for watching that, because I think... I don't know. She was gonna pick something or something, and so she's kind of got that up her sleeve. On Remember, I picked Princess and the Frog. Well, not that I like, you know, squabble too much because she watched a lot of shit because of me. But uh, yeah, really good stuff. If you got kids, or even if you just, you know, you you dig on animation, like I think it's a good one. Like you said, I'm glad Fenord uh, backed me up on that one. Yeah, I work I work with um, kids. Um, High schoolers, but um, high schoolers on the autism on the autism spectrum, um, and so we watch a lot of kind of uh, younger things uh, in some of our free time, some of our recreation time, uh, and I think that's how I saw that one. Um, and I was surprised; I was expecting to just sort of uh, phase out, um, but but I, I was surprised by it. I, I enjoyed it. And they had really breathed life into the the, the universe that it's it's inhabit like the, the the world that the characters inhabit it really breathes life in it it's very heartfelt which is nice because a lot of times you know animated films can feel very empty you know they're very much a chocolate Easter bunny right and this yeah very cloying yeah very much so and it it, it, it 
bothers me even more when you key in on sort of the emotionally manipulative stuff or when it has the obvious beats, but and this earns its good role. Yeah. All right. Um, number 17 uh, from 2014 uh, from director Michael Roscombe. It's The Drop. Uh, oh, yes. It's a, yeah, it's a great little crime story. Uh, it's got interesting characters, uh, strong performances, Tom Hardy, uh, James Gandolfini, Numi yeah. Rapace, uh, just to name three. Um, and it's a recent genre film that's not handheld. Uh with the camera, so that's always a plus for me, because handheld stuff on everything drives me absolutely batshit. Um, but that's my own personal gripe. Uh, Hardy proves once again why he's so great at playing guys who are nice but absolutely ready to fucking snap. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just it's just a, a solid little uh, you know it's a solid little movie. It doesn't uh, it doesn't try to put on pants you know big, bigger than uh, its waist and uh, I can't, can't think of anything else to say about it. It's a good movie. Uh, yeah. It's uh, I think this was based on a Dennis Lehane novel. I know it was based on a novel. I just can't think. I hope. Hmm. Um, but either way, Lehane it's uh, it's very very good. Boston, doesn't he? Uh, I bel- well that I don't know. I know he's. I know it he is a Boston a lot of his film. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, this one's uh, really worth checking out if you like. Uh, like modern uh, modern crime stories, and like I said, it's small. It's not like you know these these guys in the film Gandolfini and uh, Hardy are not you know like top tier guys. They're not like made men or any of that kind of thing. They're just a couple of guys that run a bar and run numbers out of it like everybody else does. And it's uh, how it all turns on that and uh, and Hardy getting a dog. Uh, and I'll just yeah. leave it at that. Gandolfini reminds us right, that he really should have worked more. In film, because he was an, an unbelievably gifted actor. Like in the, oh, yeah. he's amazing and he's so funny. Yep. And this, yeah, he just what a, what a great actor. True romance. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I even liked him. Um, what was it the Mexican? Which I haven't uh, seen in a long time. Oh, does yeah. he play? Is he guys tailing him or his mentor? I'm trying to remember. Y- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's tailing it. I think he was. It's been so long since I saw the movie in the theater, and that's the last time I saw it. But I remember that was the first time he sort of, uh, um, kind of came alive to me. I think. What's the um? Oh, what I can't believe I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, the crime movie that he's in. Um, uh, Get Shorty, Get Shorty. Oh yes. Um. Which I hadn't seen when I saw the Mexican, and I immediately went and saw that one, and I was like, oh, "This is a guy to, this is a guy to watch." And then I think that you know, The Sopranos kind of ate a big part of his career. Um, not that he's not great in it, um, but you just didn't get to see him as much in in different roles because Tony Soprano kind of became his like centerpiece, I think. Um, my number seventeen is an uh, animated film uh, by Don Hertzfeld called "It's Such a Beautiful Day." Um, from 2012. Uh, I love this movie. I think it could have actually fallen in my top ten. Um, it was just a lot. I did a lot of list shuffling around. Um, and it just. Have you seen it? No. I, I again, it's been it keeps popping up on Netflix, and they recommend it to me, and I keep ducking it, not for any reason. Just I don't know. 
Well, you know, it looks like it looks like one thing. I think um, I think it looks, you know, you're going to have to spend over an hour and a half. I think it's an hour and forty five minutes or something with kind of stick figures, but that's not really the way it plays. Uh, I have a lot of dynamics. Um, it's really funny. Uh, it's really sad and and sort of brutalizing about uh, one man's descent into madness. Um, uh, when he finds out he has a has a brain tumor, it's something going on with his brain, um, and it's a lot of his recollection of things that happened in his life. But I laughed out loud uh, twenty, thirty times during this movie um, because it kept surprising me with how wry and how clever it was, um, and how uh, how willing it was to. Um, to, to play with the sort of movie it was, you know, um, it was it was very it was a, it was a it was something other than I expected, which is strange because I love everything Hertzfeld's done, and I just had this one had fallen uh, by the wayside, but I it was great, uh, I highly recommend it, um, and like I said, I think it could easily fall in my top ten um, if I had made the list on a different day, you know. Cool. Have to, I'll have to stop sort of circling past it. Um, my number 17 is a documentary, Les Blank, I believe. Um, and I think this again goes to the, um, the thing we, we talked about, where you have faith in, you know, there's a reason you're shooting a documentary. Um, that is this your subject is fascinating and his subject in this is fascinating uh, Gerald the maestro Gaziola who was an aircraft mechanic a traveling salesman a bodybuilder and then he began to make art and dress as a cowboy all the time <laughs> and he's a really fascinating human being because there's a sweetness to him he's not like you know you think about a dude like that you think he's probably like shithead but um, he's in his own world but he, he's still very sweet and he almost feels like I, I don't mean this disparagingly he almost feels like a character in like a PB like a PB's playhouse or something like and here's the right. for Maestro the cowboy artist and um, you know he was a bit of a like a mini celebrity and I think around like Arizona or tech wherever he was but yeah, I think Blank gives us enough snippets of uh, Gexiola's past that allow us to really um, flesh out why he is the way he is, and it, it's it's good stuff, man. It's in that Blank box that the Criterion put out. So it's only like an hour. Yeah, it, yeah, that's a great. Is, is Gap Tooth Women in that one as well? I don't know if it is, but I love Gap Tooth Women. And I Me too. That's one I really like. I, but I, I literally love Gap Tooth Women. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Amazing. Um, you know what other one is good is um, Always for Pleasure. That's really good. I haven't seen that one. It's in that set. Um, it's uh, New Orleans. Uh, it takes place, I think, either just before, I think just before Mardi Gras or just before a specific uh, carnival in New Orleans and looks at the costume makers. In the African American community, and 
Yeah, really good stuff, man. I think there's another one he did. Um, Garlic is as good as I think it was in Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers, which is, seems kind of throwaway. Hmm. It's, it's on literally. It's on. It's on Garlic uh, aficionados. <laughs> yeah, it's such a bizarre. Uh... I mean, he's great about making anything. Uh, you know, he has his big movies like Burden of Dreams, and um, but. You know, even like the Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe documentary that he did with him and Earl Morris, like he just can take any any subject, um, any any minute niche and just make you really interested in it um, and want to watch a five hour documentary on it. Um, I think our friend Brian Higgins would be a big fan of the maestro, uh, the, the man and the documentary, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, uh, number eighteen for me, 2010, directed by Celine Danheyer, uh, Blank City. Uh, this is a documentary about the uh, the no wave uh, filmmaking um, movement that took place in the 70s, late 70s in New York City. Cool. Uh, you know, punk plus art, uh, that whole thing. It's got tons and tons and tons of fantastic archival footage. Um, it's uh, it does a great job of uh, giving the through line of where the movement came from, where it led to, uh, how it was connected to the uh, the beat poets, and um, how uh, how it eventually you know fell and why it fell. Um, I I can't say that I've ever seen any of these movies or that I'm all that excited to see too many of them. Uh, but the documentary on them is absolutely fascinating, and to just hear these people talk about the freedom that they had uh, it, to make what they wanted to make, and uh, and how they accomplished it is just it's absolutely spellbinding to me. Um, and plus, there's a great uh, quote from Debbie Harry uh, on people uh, saying that New York City is so dangerous. She said, uh, "Quote unquote, good, then don't come." And I got a kick out of that because that's completely Debbie Harry. In completely New York City, so, especially at that time. Yeah, I, I love that movie. Um, Richard Kern, I really like his movies. Um, he worked with uh, Lydia Lunch a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. I, I like the. I know music that she's that she's in this too, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like the music from that period as well, like Mars and DNA, and uh, Sonic Youth was sort of birthed out of that, and Swans, and a lot of the bands that all decided in New York City that you can just buy a thrift store guitar. And you don't have to know what you're doing, mm-hmm. and you can just get up and uh, and do whatever you want. And that mm-hmm. extended to um, writing and extended to film. And uh, well, it was there a beautiful was a, time. There was a very strong um, sense of individuality. Yeah. Even though you were part of a group, uh, you know everybody was different. Nobody, you know, you could tell people apart um, just from uh, the way that they would dress themselves differently. And everybody yeah. just, you know, they did their own thing. Um, yeah. And I don't think, I think that the more homogenous that all of that sort of thing has gotten is just, you know, taken away what made it special in the first place. Yeah. That's my opinion. I mean, people feel free to disagree with that if they like, but. Yeah, it was a good, t- it was a great time for art. The the, the volatility of uh, New York at that time. It's better for humanity now that uh that it's not sort of a lawless zone of um buildings on fire and people getting stabbed constantly and uh just the the murder rate that was happening in america in the late 70s 
but the art that came out of it um, mm-hmm. uh, is so nihilistic and, and so filled with that sense of uh, dread and immediacy mm-hmm. that um, there's nothing else like it. And it's totally created by, you know, uh, like the um, like the, the psychedelic rock scene in the in the 60s in uh, Germany, where that was completely because the children of uh, uh, who had grown up in sort of a bombed out world um in uh in uh post-world war ii germany you know you just can't you can't create that uh that environment um for that stuff to bloom it just uh it has to happen yeah it has to be spontaneous yeah so yeah um strangely enough my next movie and this is the third documentary in a row we're going to talk about um is holy ghost people from 1967 um by Peter Peter Adair. Um, Adair by. And, and he went to. Uh, this is the only movie he ever directed. Um, What's it called? He, Holy Ghost. People? Holy Holy Ghost People. Um, great title. Uh, I, when I was trying to research it, I found that they had made somebody had made a narrative film um, um, from three years ago with the same title, but this one's from '67. Uh, and he just went into a small West Virginian community that uh, practiced uh, Pentecostal, uh, the religion of Pentecostal. We call, I'm from Kentucky, and we called it uh, Holy Rollers. Um, a lot of the times, uh, snake handling folks. Um, when I was 16 or 17, uh, I went. I, I was kind of exploring, kind of trying to figure out, like you know, part of that subculture. So I went to one of those churches. Um, and they didn't do snake handling, but they did a lot of speaking in tongues and convulsing on the ground. And uh, it was – I felt very in danger. Um, but there were five or six Pentecostal churches in my town um, where those sorts of things were going on. And uh, th- so this was sort of uh, familiar to me, and it sort of it, – it brought back a lot of, like, sense memories from that one experience um, where there's a lot of people speaking in tongues and a lot of people um, – Engaging with a different kind of uh, of religion than I think that a, a more raw um, religion than I think we're used to, um, and it's really fascinating. It's just it's fifty minutes maybe. Um, Amazing. Yeah, and it's just it's it's very much Frederick Wiseman. There's no uh, commentary, um, and it's just watching people. Um, preach and watching people speak in tongues and handle snakes and uh, experience uh, their spirituality um, in a way that is uh, alien <laughs> and kind of dangerous, you know. Um, really good. Have you seen Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus? No. You've got to check it out. It's tremendous. I saw it maybe six or seven years ago. Looks at a lot of very poor... Southerners, I mean, on the real fringes, um, it kind of intertwines some that are, you know, have a strong faith, others that don't, but just sort of the, the culture of of the South and Louisiana. It's 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 a really cool documentary. All right, yeah, I'll have to see that. I I've never seen that. I have family that are Pentecostal, and uh, oh really? Yeah, it's intense, man. Like, I uh, I'm not. I didn't know it existed in in Canada. Pentecostals alive and well, man. It's uh, yeah. I have some family that are, and when we would visit them, sometimes um, my my brother and I 
church with them. And it gets mm. pretty intense, man. Like you said. Yeah. Speaking in tongues and they're going, they're they're feeling it. Um, and you get up there, you, you get up to the front and you're, I'm like eight or nine or something. Because my family's not really religious. Like, they're a little spiritual. Yeah. Yeah, me either. My children go to Catholic school for the education and be, being, um, you know, having an Italian family, uh, as Todd can tell you, it's it's as much cultural as, as it is faith. Uh, sure. The, the culture. So for me, it's about the education and um, the culture. But anyway, but it's intense. You, you get up there and I'd start trying to mimic the sounds that they would make. Uh, as Pentecostals, uh, and it's yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's uh, I w- it's intense. Yeah, I went to I, you know I went to one just to see what it was all about because it was so prevalent. Um, there were tons of basement uh, Pentecostal holiness churches, um, and there was one that was a school bus that was like down by the river, like an abandoned, broken down school bus that was a church, um, just an impromptu church down by the Kentucky river near where I lived. And I didn't go to that one ever. Cause it seemed even more, but, uh, it seemed even more, um, uh, um, dangerous, I guess, to an extent. Uh, I felt like a tourist. I went there to sort of speak, to seek the experience. And, uh, at a certain point I was like, Oh, I don't belong here. And, uh, they might take it as me like mocking them. I just sat in the back and no one said a word to me. Uh, and I kind of just, ducked out real quick at the end um it's it's just such a it's such a um demonstrative religion and something i wasn't um prepared for i think um and this sort of shows that i mean and not to say you know i'm saying nothing about um the sincerity or anything of it but it's just very alien to me you know yeah no same you know not to disparage it you know the uh certain unwavering faith you know good Good for them, certainly. But, yeah. But it, as you said, as an outsider to come in, it's uh, it's a very intense experience. It's shocking, yeah. Um, so that means it's me. Uh, Eastern Block film. This is a this is a hard one to find. I, I can't remember where I snagged it. Uh, I couldn't find a whole lot on it. Uh, it's 1966, directed by Gennady. Shpalikov, uh, a long and happy life. This is huh. yeah, this is real cool, man. It's uh, like a very honest <clears throat> look at kind of like what's that what's that series of films that Linklater did with uh, Delpy and Hawk? Um, uh, the sun, uh, before before midnight, mm, yeah, yeah, those ones. It kind of feels like that. It's about a chance encounter between a young Russian man and a young Russian woman. They spend a night together, kind of walking around, talking and. They decide they're going to get together, and the morning comes, and things look a little different in the light of morning than they did under the sparkle of the moonlight, and uh, the realities uh, start to sink in, uh, you know, and and just that realization. Um, So I think it's an interesting look at uh, youth, culture, fate, love, uh, domesticity, um, a lot of things, Uh, but it's a very simple film. 
feels very honest to me. It's under 80 minutes long. I think they remade it in 2013, but I, I quite enjoyed it. You can track it down. It's, it's well worth your time. Or if you can't, let me know. Sounds great. I I love that region, so never heard of it. And it's cool to see great. some of the nighttime stuff, like city stuff, like the way like you'd see almost like um, like Breathless or Miguel's like those like the films that show like the nightlife kind of the nighttime stuff with the early 20s kind of youth of the day that was kind of cool cool back to uh, yeah yeah uh, the year is 1956 and it's my requisite Yasujiro Ozu film uh, for the <laughs> year and it's early spring um, it is uh, set in the slums this time out uh, for Ozu, and it's uh, even more working class than uh, than he normally is. Uh, you get more shots of uh, of trains and the deep focus compositions. Uh, his whole frame within frames deals. Um, it's about a man in a, a passionless marriage who gets drawn in with another woman, and what happens from there. Um, very very strong drama but quiet as always uh, as Ozu always is and uh, compelling as all hell um, he never has cookie cutter characters and this is no exception uh, and it's uh, it doesn't really resolve, resolve how you might think it would um, and I really like that um, it's just it's solid solid Ozu as always I mean the man's there's a reason that the man's a master, and this is one of them. Um, yeah, I can't think of too much else to. I mean, if, if you've seen an Ozu film, you know what to. You know what you're going to see, and it, it almost is deceptively similar uh, because of the the shots that he uses and the uh, the environments that he shoots in. Um, but uh, they're always different, and they're always uh, they're always uh, keenly interesting, at least to me. So. Um, yeah, that's early spring. Cool. Your girl's in, isn't she? Uh, I don't think she's in this one. At least I don't remember her being in this one. I would trust your memory before I would Yeah, Satsuko, yeah, I don't think is in this one. Cool. Um, need to watch it. Um, my number 19 is, I believe, the first episode of the GGTMC I ever heard cover this film. Very early, maybe in the first 10, 20. Um, Cutthroat's Nine from 1972. Uh, I I think I held off of, uh, I held off from it because y'all were not into it. Um, I loved it. I I loved it, and then I watched it a week later with friends, and everyone really loved it. Um, the, the just the dream the dreamy quality of it I think maybe if you I think approaching it as a western um, and I think at the time when you all saw it Tarantino was still flirting with the remake if I remember correctly um, it is it is very different and you I think you either have to settle into the tone or you're gonna completely just think it's a slog um, but Wow, it had it, it just punctuated by insane gore um, and bizarre flashback dream sequences that seem very European. Um, 
and it's it's you know it's a snow western which I you don't see much um, you know until the I guess the hateful eight and the beginning of Django you know sort of brought back that idea but um, I loved it absolutely loved it Are you a fan of the great silence yeah oh yeah that's uh, that's the top five spaghetti western for me forgot about that one that's a great one yeah um, I can see why you, I can see why it might be a little slow, um, in a sense, but I loved it. So that's my number uh, nineteen. Todd, where is, uh, have you seen I'm sorry. I have not. No. Cool. All right. What do we got? Uh, we got me then, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, number nineteen. Yeah, we're shipping a lot way here because it's getting late. We're into the wee hours. Uh, napping between. I am waiting <laughs> fast. This is a film. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I'm not. A, I've been on the record about not really being a huge fan of his work, but the people that uh, he collaborated with on this really helped drive it home for me. It's Jean-Luc Godard's 1972 film Tout Va Bien. Uh, Godard examines the structure of movies, relationships, and revolutions through the life of a couple in Paris. And the couple is played by Yves Montand and Jane Fonda, who's one of my favorites. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, this, this does a lot of things I don't like, but I think, uh, uh, sorry, it does things that I typically am not a huge fan of his for, but, you know, Eve and Jane as a couple kind of... Uh, the Wiggles, uh, you know, just kind of going back and forth on stuff. And, you know, very no frills setting, kind of low, low key. Oh, it's cutting hair in the background. <laughs> That's me, buddy. That was my uh, stove. I was turning, I was turning the kettle on. I need some tea. Just clicking away the pilot light. <laughs> okay, I admitted I was cutting my nails. Uh, why don't you uh, cut into uh, your number 20 then? <laughs> <laughs> that's a segue. Um, number that's, 20. That's professional. Is, uh, number 20 for me is the Duke of Burgundy. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just, I was really surprised because this is another one that I was a little bit cautious about getting into because it's one of those ones you hear a lot of good and bad about, about it being, you know, kind of uh, a little bit overly arty uh, and that sort of thing but I didn't find that to be the case at all really uh, I thought it was a very interesting take on fantasy reality and uh, when one overtakes the other um, it's uh, you know, it's the story about a, a two women in a dom-sub relationship uh, and it becomes much more than uh, just a game for them because they just uh, the one starts to want more from the relationship and the other one wants it to go deeper into the uh the game um and there's uh you know it's a great movie it's filled with lots of uh, visual metaphors and you care about these two people and uh what's going on with them and kind of the relationship is the way that it's uh kind of unraveling for them and uh yeah man, I, it's i don't know um i don't know how you couldn't like this thing but yeah, different strokes for different folks, right? Yeah, I loved it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's great. 
great. There's, uh, I mean, like I said, there's just a, a ton to, to look at and to, I'm sure, on repeat viewings to uh, to start finding new things uh, that are going on within the frame, which I would uh, no doubt is uh, there's plenty of. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's all I got to say about it. It's a solid, uh, solid recommend. Cool. Yeah, great movie. Um, my number twenty is John Huston's 1979 film Wise Blood, um, <laughs> with starring Brad Dourif. Uh, yeah, and in one of his, I cannot fathom why that man did not get more leading roles. Just on the back of this movie alone. Um, uh, what a it, it it sort of drives me insane. Like what a wasted um, talent. Um, not that not that he was wasted. I mean, he was in tons of great, you know, Sunny Boy and um, Exorcist Three, and uh, you know, the voice of Chucky, of course. I mean, he he had his moments, <laughs> um, but he just never got the meaty role that that this is. Um, he's fin- he's just fantastic in it. Henry Dean Stanton. Is uh, is it Henry Dean? Sorry, Harry. Harry Dean. Harry Dean Stanton. That's a fucking major faux pas. Um, he's from ten minutes away from where I'm from, so I'm gonna get I'm gonna get shot next time I go home. He's not just jinxed it. Oh god. Oh man. Um, Ned Beatty, Amy Wright is incredible in it. William Hickey shows up for a minute, uh, like a pretty young William Hickey, which. Uh, you know, are used to the feeble old William Hickey. Um, Harry Dean Stanton is 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 just brilliant in this. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say about it other than um, I mean, I would I would talk about it at great length about the you know the the the, the sort of uh, con nature of the entertainment nature of the preacher and what it's sort of um, what it's taking down a notch. I think um, is. Is that it's as easy to it's as easy to look at um, uh, a preacher, an entertainer, a con man on some sort of continuum, and that there can be a there can be sort of a guise of um, of earnest behavior um, from from um, from people in positions of power and people who are uh, raconteurs. Uh, and it, it's saying a lot about uh, uh, the nature of um, true faith and true spirituality, uh, and what that what that represents, especially in the American South in that period of time. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's great. Weirdest John Huston movie, maybe. Uh, yeah, it's up there. If you don't count him, his his acting role in The Visitor, but. <laughs> Under the volcano. Oh, day of the volcano. Is that what it, under the volcano? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book too. Yeah. Uh, let's take a short break, and we're gonna come right back. Uh, I'm gonna wake Todd up and get rolling. <laughs> Actually, no. Have I? No, I haven't done my twenty. I gotta do my twenty. Fuck. And then we'll think of yeah, you do. My number 20, uh, again, it was shame. I was a bit shamed that I hadn't seen anything from this studio. And it was the first one. I watched it with my kids. They flipped their wigs for it. I did. 
It's Totoro, Totoro. Our friend, our neighbor, my neighbor, Totoro. Um, first Ghibli we saw, we happened, it was a bit serendipitous. We went to Montreal like a week later and we were in Chinatown and saw all sorts of Totoro stuff in there and cat bus stuff. We're big fans of the cat bus here in the Smith House. Um, yeah, the, the Ghibli stuff, you know, we've seen three or four since. Um, being my first, you know, you never forget your first. Uh, it's just that there's a wonderful, relaxed nature about their films that, as much as I love, love, love Disney, I just, I feel, um, these films, the, the, the Ghibli films feel less caffeinated and propulsive, which would be a good thing. They, they feel smaller in scale. Awesome. I've never seen a Studio Ghibli film, um, and that's on my resolutions for 2017. Show it to some of your kids. So watch some of those. Yeah. Totoro is so like, especially maybe Totoro. Like, I think Spirit Away might be a little intense, but um, sure. Totoro, Kiki's pretty good. Uh, yeah, there's there's some good. Stuff. They're all you know, they're all 17, 16 to 19 years old. You know, they can handle whatever. They watch R-rated movies. And stuff, but uh, they also can, you know, as a, as a school thing, we do a lot of animated stuff. So. Cool. So we're gonna take a short break. Come right back and uh, power our way through our. Give us a short drift to our 21 to 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll be like uh, Twitter. We're just gonna have like a character limit. Okay, and we're back. It's time to talk in our fastest voices uh, we can muster. Uh, we've been at this for. Man, has it been four hours? Yeah, it's been pretty damn close. Yeah. Todd's unzipping. He's zipped up. <laughs> Does he got a zipper leather jacket on? He's he's ready to go, man. It's just pants off at this point, buddy. Pants off, leather jacket, no shirt underneath. Maybe a cod piece. I got the shark tooth necklace. Oiled up and ready for bed. He's ready. Yeah, he's ready. It's, you know, a good thing Fenor's been breaking on those chaps. It's, uh, it's <laughs> um, Todd, what's number twenty-one? Number twenty-one is uh, 2015 from Todd Haynes. It is Carol. Nice. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's very much the antithesis to Haynes' um, Far From Heaven. Uh, while it shares a lot of the similarities, um, yeah, Carol, uh, played by uh, Kate Blanchett, is uh, imprisoned in domesticity. Uh, it's a darker film stylistically than that film, than uh, Far From Heaven. Uh, it's grittier in texture. Uh, it's uh, it spotlights some uh, some nice little dreamlike sequences. Um, you know, Blanchett is is electric as as she always is, uh, and Rooney Mara, uh, who plays her uh, the woman who, or the younger woman who uh, who she falls for, is to me the weakest part of the film. Uh, Rooney Mara being Rooney Mara, um, but other than that, I mean, this is just a really great movie uh, about uh, you know that time and that place and um, how people uh, had to had to. Uh, change themselves in order to uh to 
fit in or to make other people happy instead of making themselves happy. Um, but yeah, no, this was really, really good. Glad I saw it. I love Tom Haynes, and uh, there's another good one from him. Cool. Uh, my number 21 is Scream for Help from 1984. Michael Winner directed um, of Death Wish fame. Todd Holland, who wrote Class of 84, Fright Night, Cloak of Dagger, uh, Child's Play. Uh, Cloak and Dagger, not Cloak of Dagger. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I don't know what the fuck this movie is. I don't know who it was intended for. Uh, it's essentially the sleaziest Nancy Drew uh, novel ever written. Um, it's almost like Penthouse Letters, Nancy Drew. Um, scream for help. Scream for help. Uh, it's essentially a teenage girl thinks that her stepdad is trying to murder her mom, and despite her best efforts, her mom will not listen, so she decides to become a detective and find out what her stepdad is up to. Winner love. Um, what? Winner love to bring the sleaze. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's um, it's really sleazy, and, in, and, and it's like two teenage girls kind of doing detective work on this – sleazy incest what you think is like an incest story kind of uh it goes places and the last 30 minutes are completely different from the first 30 um and again i don't know who the audience the intended audience was for this uh it's not quite a horror movie it's not quite a crime movie um it's just a it's a sleazy teenage girl detective movie um and who knows what the fuck the point of that was. But uh, I love it. I love it. I think I could watch it once every six months and enjoy it. <laughs> uh, my number 21, another Ghibli film, Spirited Away. Um, I think this one would probably appeal most to of the ones I've seen um, to people, they, uh, our listeners that maybe did find it a little too kind of sweet and quiet. Um, this is a, maybe the most beautiful of the films that I've seen before I've seen. Um, it gets pretty, you know, pretty intense in spots. I mean, this part is protagonists, and this quest this girl goes on at this abandoned amusement park, and her parents are turning into giant pigs in front of her eyes, and it, it just—it's really cool, man. Um, yeah, uh, Sugawara does one of the voices, in it, so that's cool. Uh, yeah, check it out. One of the great things about Ghibli films is that they really do transcend um, the cultural. Yeah, they, I mean, they really do without without having to say anything. But they also, I think, um, enhance an appreciation for different cultures through very subtle, like some of the images. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't have to. You don't have to know about Japanese culture in order to appreciate the films. You can just go in stone cold, and uh, you know, get everything out of it that you're supposed to get. Plus, so yeah, no, I agree. Um, number twenty-two, Martin Ritz, HUD from 1963. Oh, wow. I love that uh, movie. Love that movie. With uh, Paul Newman playing a charming jerk off. Um, <laughs> This is uh, you get all oh, uh, there's fantastic cinematography from James Wong Howe. Um, 
Patricia Neal really sells it as the the milfy sex pot. Uh, you got some nice Southern Gothic elements, um, and there's but it's all really uh, you know about this dicey family dynamic, uh, which is ang ang oh Christ I can't speak, uh, which is anchored by uh, sexual tension. Um, it's just a it's an endlessly fascinating movie because you know Newman's character is just not nice at all, uh, but you can't stop watching him do what he does. Um, yeah, I don't know what else I could say about it. I mean, it looks great. It's well acted. It's well written. Uh, it's got a little bit of sleaze in there um, towards the back end. So, uh, yeah, uh, I recommend again. I love that movie. I went into it thinking it would be kind of dry, and it just it charmed me. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. From from the first minute, love it. Yeah, I kind of I kind of was staying away from it too because I thought it might be a little bit you know just kind of stayed and. Uh, you know, nothing really to to jump out at you, but yeah, no, there's there's uh, there's some stuff going on in this thing. This is a very very likable movie, uh, mm-hmm. even though he's unlikable. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my number twenty two from nineteen fifty, starring John Dahl, who um, didn't work enough. Uh, he's the main character in Rope, which is one of my favorite Hitchcock films. Um, it's gun crazy. Um, <laughs> About a young man who has an obsession with guns, but no criminal intent, um, but gets sent away to a juvenile detention center when he's young for stealing a gun. Um, And he grows up and um, uh, gets out of the army, and he's a sharpshooter, and he meets a girl at a carnival who is also a sharpshooter, and they go on a crime spree. Uh, It's fantastic. The the style, it's just... The style of it is um, unlike anything at the time, you know. Um, the guy who the guy who made it, uh, Joseph H. Lewis, was kind of a journeyman, like B movie director. Uh, I don't think I've seen anything else he did. Um, but this, yeah, this movie, it, it looks great. It's a it's a, a very fast watch. Um, you're kind of engaged from from the very beginning and. Uh, and it uh, never stops. Really entertaining and looks great. Excellent. My number 22, the old deuce deuce. There's you know, a lot of kid stuff here in the back end of my list. Um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I've never seen a Harry Potter movie. Really no, me neither. They're really good. I was loath to see them um, simply because... I'm not really into magic. Uh, I certainly had no interest in boy wizards. And <laughs> I, I, just, I laughed at how much I... That's the first thing I associate you with. Boy wizards. Actually. <laughs> I think that Will Smith, he really likes boy wizards. Good wizards. This might be my favorite of the films. I don't know. I, I think that um, these films are so beloved. They're just cherished by so many people. And now I understand why. Um, the, you talk about world building. The the, pod, the rolling has created such a wonderful universe with uh, so many great characters, and these characters are, are brought to life through, I mean, just grade A uh, veterans of of uh, stage and and British film and film the world over. People like uh, Brendan Gleeson, um, yeah, who Gambon. 
Gary Oldman, David Thewlis. I mean, Alan Rickman, right? Rickman, who's you know, I adore him in these films. Is Toby Jones in this as well, or is that does he just do Lord of the Rings stuff? I love Toby Jones. I think he just does. I know I haven't seen him in these. Okay. Um, Rupert. Heavyweight of the scene, um, not Natalia Tena, who I'm a big fan of. Um, yeah, just wonderful stuff. And I might as well just—I'm going to get it out now. You know what? I'll save it. Forget it. Uh, Harry Potter: The Iron Phoenix, Deuce Deuce, number twenty-two. Nice. Uh, number twenty-three, two thousand nine. Pedro Almodovar's Broken Embraces. Um, it's a great melodrama uh, from. From the man with the the glorious Penelope Cruz, uh, given a fantastic little turn as a reluctant mistress. Um, it's got incredible visuals. I mean, if you've ever seen uh, an Almodovar film, you kind of know where you're going with this, but at the same time, you have no idea where you're going with this. To kind of paraphrase uh, Awesome Fabian. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's just good stuff. It's perverse and funny and kind of a little troubling and gorgeous looking um, all the way through it. So. Broken Embraces, man. Good stuff. It's one I've never seen. Uh, another really? one. Yeah. Never seen it. There's a few of his that the, that I still have yet to catch up on. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to uh, Julieta. Yeah, yeah. Cool. There's, I think, two of his. Um, Kika. Mm. Flower. Secret. Or... Yeah, I think it's the flower in my secret. Uh, I definitely haven't seen Kika yet. Uh, I don't remember if I saw. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Um, so we got. All right. All of you. 23. This is part of my December of 90s thrillers. I was really surprised by this one because I had no interest in it when it came out. Um, 1997's Breakdown with okay. Kurt Russell. Yeah. yeah. J.T. Yeah, Walsh. That's it's really good. J.T. Walsh, M.C. Um, MC Ganey, Some strong, strong character actors. Yeah. Can I tell you just – I didn't want to digress, but I meant to mention this earlier. I don't know how I have time to mention it again. M.C. Ganey – shows up as, like, the sort of chauffeur-slash-cheerleader for the Mighty Ducks in the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> and it's insane to me that for three-quarters of the movie, I kept saying to my kids, oh, my gosh, that's Michael Ironside, one of my favorite actors. And as the movie got yeah. and it kept showing him... He's, like, the bad coach, right? He's, like, the... No, no. The other... No, he's, Who is like he? the chauffeur. The other coach is, uh, what's his name, Lane... Not Lane Smith. What's his name? Um, I'm going to look it up here. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. Um, but uh, MC Gain- Who's Ironside, then? Well, Ironside's, <laughs> Ironside's not in it. Oh, oh. I thought just, MC okay, Ganey was Michael Ironside. Oh, okay. And if you see this film, I know it sounds crazy, but if you see this film, it makes sense. Until he stood up, I'm like, man, he's got like a big caboose, like... <laughs> Ironside gained some weight, but it was so funny to me to think that it was Michael Ironside. But I'm telling you, if you watch, if you see stills of MC Ganey 
in Mighty Ducks, it looks like Michael Ironside. <laughs> that's so that's so funny because as soon as you said Michael Ironside and Mighty Ducks I haven't seen that movie since I was 12 you know and uh, I immediately pictured Michael Ironside with a ponytail like yeah. standing by the by the, the hockey rink just screaming at children I was like uh, I totally inserted that into the movie um, the so look Lane look for my remake yeah, Lane Smith is the, the asshole coach Oh, Lane's, was that the guy that was, uh, yeah, I know him. Um, he was the lawyer in uh, My Cousin Vinny. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know yeah, yeah, yeah. V? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, I know Lane Smith. Um, oh, but, but yeah, Breakdown. And it's Kurt Russell in, like, 90s Kurt Russell mode where he's, you know, got a polo and glasses and, you know, he's kind of he's kind of an accountant type. Um which I felt like was kind of a mode that Kurt Russell did for a while um, in the 90s. Executive decision, right? That what that's called? Um, anyway, uh, I, it's a great little road movie. Uh, kind, it kind of feels like uh, Spore Loose. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, van- the Vanishing at the beginning. Uh, his wife gets abducted, and um, then it turns into sort of a grim serial killer movie for a while and then a car chase movie at the end it really uh shifts gears a lot um i guess pun intended and uh it's a it's a it's a great movie kathleen quinlan's really good in it um yeah it's a good ticket it's exactly what you want to have a 90s thriller or out of a thriller in general really so let's break down And I guess that means it's my turn. Yeah, I think so. MC Ganey fucking dude, the most pictures, man. <laughs> it's like you'd think of all the pictures, they'd have a few decent shots of him from Mighty Ducks. Unbelievable. I'm going to have to go back and watch Mighty Ducks. That was shot here in the city in Minneapolis where I live now. Uh, so I haven't seen it since I moved moved here, but... Um, my next one is a short um, from 1972. Um, I, I can't remember. I think I read um, uh, an article about it, uh, and I just, I, man, this sounds amazing. I got to uh, track it down. Uh, is this? Is this? Can I be your bratwurst, please? <laughs> With Jeff Stryker. Cabina, 1972, the telephone. <laughs> uh, Spain. It's it feels like a kind of like a feverish Twilight Zone episode. It's but a man that gets trapped inside a telephone box and no one's able to free him. Really cool. I think you can see it on YouTube. Um, it was one of those ones that I think stuck with a lot of people when they saw it, and it's aired over time and. Um, you kind of get the reveal at the back end, but it, I think it's, it's saying a lot, and uh, you know, it's uh, well, I mean, I'm saying a lot, but it has a few things on its mind. It's, it's able to be a bit subversive, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's all those ones are gonna stick with me. Did I lose you guys? No, 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 I'm here. The water, he's having a heavy, he's got a strong flow, man. 
Oh, can you hear that? I put it on mute. It's uh, I had to turn the bathtub water on for my cat. <laughs> he he likes to uh, he likes to drink out of the sink, out of the out of the bathtub. You know. So I so I, <laughs> I I run I run it for him and he gets up on the side and drinks out of the uh, as the bathtub water runs. He's a he's a very pampered little guy. Um, but I thought that I was on mute. Well, so you were, but then when you took it off just for a second, it was like, it's, I was like, man, dude, uh, dude had to go. He's got to go. Ignore the fire hose. Oh, but yeah. Well, yeah, we can ed- we can edit this to make it seem like that's what it was happening. Yeah. Showers in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's all I got for all right. Uh, number 24 for me, 1941 from Kenji Mizuguchi, 47 Ronin. Um, it is, uh, like a four hour long, uh, adaptation of the story. Uh, and it moves by fairly, fairly quickly, actually. Um, it's gorgeous. It's studied. Uh, it's, you know, flat out brilliant, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I haven't seen tons of Mizuguchi, so you know to add one more on there, uh, I'm really happy that I finally that I you know spent the time uh, devouring this one. Uh, the man loves his crane shots, um, and the the film maintains interest with uh, no on-screen violence, uh, or at least not that uh, I can recall seeing. Um, like we never see the actual, we never see the actual. Um, uh, point of the whole movie it's a lot of guys it's mostly a lot of uh, these guys talking and um, kind of figuring out uh, what their place is after this incident happens uh, and the guys cry a lot in it so um, you know if you're, if you're not into that sort of thing then you probably don't want to watch this uh, it, it really it doesn't end how you think um, and it doesn't even end at a point that you would think that it would end at uh, and interestingly, it you know it was made in 1941, just as uh, World War II, or I should say, America's involvement in World War II was uh, was kicking off. Um, but it doesn't really it doesn't really bear on this film like some of the uh, some of the Japanese cinema of the time did, or at least not that I picked up on all that much. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's just really really good. It's a solid solid epic uh, drama uh, from a you know a guy who's quickly moving up the ranks in my estimation um as uh, i'm sure he's already uh at the top for a great many people but uh, you know i'm a i'm a uh, what you call it a uh, slow study so um and uh, yeah that's all i got on 47 ronin nice uh my number 24 is a movie that i i would have sworn uh, if you asked me two years ago that i'd seen this movie um because of one scene, uh, I kind of message Will about this. I was like, "What about movies that we've sort of seen?" Oh, yeah. um, so there's one scene from this movie that kind of I think uh, made me believe that I'd seen the whole movie because it haunted me so much as a kid and it involves a giant pair of scissors in a hospital, um, and that's The Exorcist Three. Um, Exorcist Three is fantastic. It's 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 such a different movie than the first one, which is why I think it gets um, sort of derided a bit. 
Uh, but George C. Scott's incredible, and Brad Dourif's incredible, and Jason Miller, of course. Um, and I'm not sure if I even saw the Legion version of it. I think so, because I think the main difference is more Brad Dourif. Um, yeah, I think there's like a cut that William Peter Blatty did. I'm sort of undereducated on it. I read about it a while back, and I don't remember. Um, but a Legion cut where it's... Uh, more his version of the movie. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass. Maybe that's something completely different. I don't know if you all know, but uh, um, it was great. It was great. Uh, Brad Dourif again. I, I just wish there was more Brad Dourif in film. Uh, he's he's brilliant. Um, Sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. Go ahead. I think that it's been well documented, but I think this has legit the greatest jump scare of all time. The scissor thing? Yeah. Now that was, yeah, that was all I remembered. Unreal scene. Unreal. Man. Unbelievable. It just stretches. Oh. I'll tell you what, we've covered the trilogy on the show. I might, might get a chance to Tuesday night, to, and I hope I can go to see Ninth Configuration and Exorcist 3 on the big screen. Wow. In honor of uh, William Peter Blatty. I love the trilogy. R.I.P. Yeah. yeah. I love the trilogy. Um, I know one is a classic. You know, Stone Cold, you know, classic. Two, a lot of people hate, but I really love. I really love. It's cocaine fever. I just go for it. <laughs> that one I've only seen on television when I was younger, so I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. Love it and three is just it's so good and so people need to stop sleeping on it it's so good yeah yeah and i think the thing is you know like i said i think i saw it when i was a kid i was way too young to be seeing it um but i had a lot of older siblings and my parents were done parenting by the time i was born so they're just like just do whatever we don't care and uh I, I saw that and i remember that scissor scene just sticking in my head um so when i went back and watched it i was like this is gonna be a fun Rewatch, and then I realized nothing seemed familiar um, to me outside of that scene, um, for whatever reason. So nice. My number twenty-four is it was the last film I watched this year um, by a filmmaker I've only discovered maybe the past three or four years. I still haven't seen a ton of her stuff, but I think she's a really cool, really cool woman, um, great filmmaker. Agnes Varda's Vagabond. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, I. it, it kind of feels like Gus Van Sant is probably a fan of this film. It feels kind of like Van Sant's early stuff. A little bit. I mean, it's it's maybe a little more linear. And linear but it's not as, as many flourishes stylistically, but... Yeah, it's a really, really good film um, about a young woman who's basically homeless. She drifts around uh, a lot through the south of France, and, you know, she um, meets different people. It's kind of about her encounters, and the flashes back to her encounter it's a, it's a really good film. It feels like the Darden Brothers. Uh, Darden Brothers? Yeah, Darden Brothers. Hmm. Fans as well, uh, I would imagine. Kind of the... the Kitchen sinky feel, so yeah, there you go. Uh, 
Cool. That means that our dude Todd is is going to be woken up from his slumber. Todd, are you alive? Yeah. Um, yeah. Of the three Stooges, I don't know which one I would snore like. Um, number twenty-five for me is uh, Anthony Mann film from nineteen fifty-five, Man from Laramie. Uh, really, really great western. It's got some psychodrama elements to it. Uh, Jim, James Stewart uh, has a real dark mean streak inside him in this thing, uh, and he's just you know barely keeping it in. Um, Arthur Kennedy is great as the uh, the colleague slash foil to uh, to Stewart, uh, and uh, Alex Nichol is fucking intense as the son of the old rancher in this thing. Um, it's a really good uh, it's a really good western, uh, and uh, it's. One of the I haven't seen a ton of Anthony Mann westerns. I've kind of been working through, or Anthony Mann films. I've kind of been working through uh, through his uh, back catalog, as it were. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, this one finally came up, and I know that this one and I believe Winchester '73 are uh, considered by a, a lot of folks to be his uh, his two best. Um, at least westerns, if not film. Um, and I got to say, if this is any indication, then I'm really, really, really looking forward to Winchester 73. Uh, and um, yeah, if you like westerns at all, uh, or even just you know, film in general, uh, Man from Laramie is a, a pretty damn good uh, good choice. That's all on that one for me. Cool. Nice. All right, my number 25 is uh, a Fastbender film. Uh, I feel like I've seen. A good chunk of Fassbender's work, um, but this is uh, Despair from 1978. Uh, it's based on the Nabokov novel, um, which I think the the novel is on par with Lolita as a novel. It's it's a really great. It's one of his best. Um, Tom Stoppard, who is a playwright who wrote um, Brazil um, and Empire of the Sun. Uh, screenplays. He wrote this. This is, I think, Fassbender's only movie where it's all in English. Um, Dick Bogard is the star, um, and it's about it, it's a, it's a set against Nazi Germany. It's about a German chocolatier um, who is losing his mind, um, and it's a really funny, really it's the kind of like seventies um, paranoid, insane. Um, madcap kind of movie um, that you know there, there's only there's only a handful of uh, and it, and it's really brilliant. Um, have you all ever seen it? No. It's in I mean it's in my top five fast bender I think along with like Alley and uh, World on a Wire. Wire <laughs> too. I meant to cover it on the show. Oh, you've never seen that one? No, man. We were gonna cover it and then. Diabolic, I think had it, they were out of it, so we just. Um. Yeah, I keep meaning to see it. Man, that's a, like that's a that's a perfect movie for me. Um, it's great, low key science fiction movie. Every shot is a masterpiece. Um, yeah, it was made for German TV, which is mind boggling that that was what people are. I think it's 1973 that that's what people in Germany were watching on television. 1973, you know. Um, it's, it's a masterpiece. Uh, and this one is, this one's fantastic. Um, I think it might, it's a little, 
it's a little uh, wacky, but at the same time kind of um, reserved in a way. Um, I think it could be compared slightly to something like Confederacy of Dunces, um, uh, the, the, the novel, um, in that you kind of have a, a crazy world that everyone takes as being um, sort of the world they exist in, you know, but everything's very um, uh, manicured and oddball. Um, but I, I loved it. Yeah. Um, this is this. This is the second last kids film on my list. Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. We kind of talked about the Potter world um, with my last one. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is good stuff. Um, I love the Potter stuff. We got about two more, so we got to get through. So. Stuff. Cool. Um, number 26 from 2015, uh, directed by Todd Strauss Schulson. It's Final Girls. Oh. Uh, yeah. The old, oh, if you think this is uh, a curveball, wait till you see my number 30. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's an old two slash send up of slasher films, and it gets it largely right. Um, it keeps. It keeps centered with the uh, the mother daughter relationship. Uh, it's at the heart of it. Uh, it's funny. It's pretty smart. It's very satisfying, um, and it's got a nice uh, nice soundtrack to it too. Nice little uh, score going on there. And Joshua John Miller wrote that, right? Uh, uh, that I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, Jason Miller's son. Um, Actor. Uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen him in anything in a long while. I love him in *River's Edge*, which is one of my favorite yeah. movies. Uh, what movie does yeah. he play a vampire in? *Near Dark*. *Near Dark*. Yeah. That's right. We had a fangy uh, credit somewhere in there. <laughs> Hanging a fang. Hanging a fang there, buddy. But yeah, no, I was surprised that that, that I like this one as much as I did. These these kind of things can tend to go a bit sideways uh, very quickly for me. Uh, but this uh, this hit, and it, it hit pretty well. So to make it into the top thirty, hey. I thought it was really great. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, I don't know offhand. What did you say? Can you have some involvement with that? Oh, I, I don't know. That wouldn't, you know, that would make that would make sense because it looks really good. Uh, Hello. Let's see. Uh, do, 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 Sorry, do. kind of cut on my end. It looks really good, especially that sort of like final fight, um, sort of showdown, is is uh, kind of impressive. It's on. Uh, it's only on DVD in the uh, in the states. Uh, from Netflix. Uh, okay. Maybe another service is streaming. Oh, I thought you said something about Cundy. No? Well, no, no. He asked about he asked about Netflix first. That's what I was... Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was uh, looking at first. But uh, as, far as, who, as far as who shot it, it was... Do, 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 El- Eli Smolkin? Not. Not Dean Cundy, no sir. I know it's a good-looking movie and has a it has a surprising amount of heart, which I was yeah. shocked by. Oh, wait, I was shocked that I responded to that. Actually. 
Is that the one um, where the Taisa Farmiga and uh, um, Malin Ack- Ackerman? Yes, Ackerman. I did see it where they keep looping the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Fun man, it does look yeah. good. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I did like this actually. It was good, and even you, you did care about the characters enough. Yeah. Um, Chloe Bridges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> cross from open. No, this was good. You're right. Uh, sorry, I was. I, for some reason, there, there was a few films. There was another movie with the same title. It came out the same year. Yeah. That starred um, Wes Bentley. Um, from like American Beauty and stuff. Uh, that was supposedly terrible, but I never saw it. I think it's called The Final Girl. Um, singular. Um, all right, my twenty-six is Baby Blood. From, from France. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah, I love it. Oh yeah, awesome. Uh, Emmanuel Escaru, like, Jesus Christ, she is beautiful. Um, <laughs> uh, she's 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 gorgeous, and the movie is is some strange mixture of uh, art house and gore. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, like Hidden Lauder's Brain Damage, in a way. Um, where she has sort of a, the parasitic um, uh, baby, for lack of a better word, that she has to feed um, through, like, homicidal, you know, through urban stalking and um, murder. Uh, I thought it was really great. It, 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 it surprised me how, how artful and how uh, um, smart it was, despite being, you know, more or less a, a parasitic uh, baby movie. <laughs> Uh, I liked it. Yeah, no, that was a that was a really good one. I was surprised by that one. Uh, and that was well, that was a while back that I saw it. And that one, it, it, in lesser hands, could have really been just obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it could have been I've, dicey. I've never seen any other movies by uh, Elaine Robeck, I believe is his name. Um, I've never seen any of his other movies, but they all look really interesting to me. Um, Problem with a lot, I was surprised. Of, a lot of uh, films of the time, uh, French, uh, sort of mid '80s to early '90s French film or Japanese film. Certain countries just seems like a black hole as far as being able to find anything. Sometimes, yeah. Goodness, we're in an age of fan subs, but yeah, yeah. I'm not sure about the availability of it. Um, I got it from the place that shall not be named. That's how I saw it. Um, next up is my last children's film. This almost looks like watercolor animation. Uh, it's also from France. Um, I, I think Todd's a fan, I think. Um, Ernest and Celestine, 2012. Uh-huh. Yeah, didn't we... Yes, we did. Yeah. I really, really loved. Um, it's got Lauren Bacall. It's got um, William H Macy, Paul Giamatti, Megan Mullally. I've never, I've never even heard of this. Forrest Whitaker is, oh, yeah. is the the high point for me. The story of an unlikely friendship between a bear and a young mouse. Yep. Um, it's it's huh. wonderful. It's got a lot to say. Um, about you know, obviously overcoming differences. Good message certainly. I mean, just beside our differences, there's universal 
needs we have and hopes and these beautiful kind of watercolory kind of look. Uh, I really like it. it. It's good, man. My kids dug it a lot too. You know, first they're like, oh, I don't know why you want to watch it. And, just kind of suck them in, and but yeah, Forrest Whitaker is always the high point for me when I think about this film. His voice works just so wonderfully suited to the role of the bear, of Ernest. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I loved it too. It's uh, it's just really uh, human, I guess would be the best way to that I could describe it. And yes, it is is absolutely gorgeous. I could see why I could see why it wouldn't be naturally appealing to uh, a lot of kids with. Um, a lot of the more modern um, animation out there. Quiet. Yeah, yeah. It's quiet and it looks almost a little bit sketchy, and you know that might put some some kids off. So, and I think that's okay too because I think that this might be aimed a little bit more at um, uh, not at adults, but just at a family um, a family audience rather than just children. You know what I mean? Does that make sense, or am I am I not explaining it right? Am I not saying? Okay. But yeah, no, this one uh, this one was really good. It's very uh, very nice. It's a nice, quiet, you know, just good little film. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. You're right. It is because it is less quiet and kind of flashy. Mm-hmm. All righty, uh, number twenty seven. Uh, from 2015, Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs. Um, it's uh, super sharp writing, super strong performances uh, across the board. It's uh, it's very quick paced for a uh, talking head film. And it's got a lot of interesting visuals, which I wasn't expecting. Um, I like that it raises uh, issues of the effects of PCs on life. And... Um, it just shows, it, you know, it doesn't candy coat uh, Steve Jobs, you know, it doesn't make him out of, to be some deity uh, who is, you know, super great. Although it does, it does try to, it does try to um, wrap it up and give him a redemption of a sort in the end, rather than just... Uh, Allowing everything to to play out, and I don't know the truth of, of any of this, so I mean, what the hell do I know? Um, but as far as the film goes, uh, that was kind of the one false note for it for me. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just great. And his relationship uh, with, or his rapport, I should say, on screen with um, Kate uh, Winslet uh, is just great. Uh, she's fantastic in this. Uh, but I mean, like I said, then everybody's fantastic in this, and I was kind of surprised that it's as uh, visually striking as it is um, for something that's you know just people talking directly before uh, the the um, launch of uh, several uh, Apple products. So I would see this for Fastbender. I have no interest otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth seeing for just for Fastbender, absolutely. But uh, I think you'll get a little bit more out of it than. Uh, than just that, if you do, uh, if you do decide to take the plunge, I think I will eventually. I almost crammed it, but uh, Boyle's real kind of hit or miss for me. Yeah, for me too. For me too. Uh, but this one hit for me, so yeah. Give it a whirl. Yeah, that's all I got on Steve Jobs. Cool. Um, number twenty-seven for me is Romeo is Bleeding from nineteen ninety-three <laughs> with Gary Oldman and Lena Olin. Um, 
I, I don't. I think that uh, if you get past the the writing style of the first ten minutes, um, I think it gets lumped in with the post Tarantino overly written sort of um, knockoff stuff. Uh, but it's much better than that. Uh, it's a much stranger, much more textured movie than it appears on its face. Um, have you all both seen this? Yeah, yeah. so I saw it back in like college or something, I think. Right. Right. I, I saw this because Cult of Muscle, I think they covered it and it sounded interesting to me. And and it was something I had overlooked uh, repeatedly because I kind of, you know, I kind of looked at it and thought, oh, it's like a boondock saint sort of thing or something, you know, some sort of. Some sort of garbage knockoff um, post Tarantino thing, um, but wow, it's real. It's a really strange movie. Um, Gary Oldman's great in it. Lena Olin, like the, their whole relationship uh, and the way that it, the way that it, um, the way it handles, um, it's very like by the numbers seeming plot uh, is so bizarre um, and enjoyable that. Uh, um, it surprised me. It transcended my expectations for uh, what it was. Yeah, it's nice when it films can pleasantly do that. Yeah. Really What's that? Um, yeah, I, like sometimes with films, it's like uh, you know, when you have that, you just you have really diminished expectations based on you know preconceived notions and things. But yeah, seems to really kind of just destroy those. You know, it's such a great feeling. It kind of gives you more reasoning and hoped to roll the dice more in the future exactly exactly and uh and uh, sometimes sometimes as uh film watchers as people who sort of kind of stretch uh um you know the ken the sort of uh, the, the sort of vision of like what you what you expect out of films what you are looking for uh and then you see something and you're like man i'm a cynical prick I, you know, I just put this on in like a garbage pile and uh, maybe there's a bunch of other stuff that I've just completely glossed over um, that will surprise me like this did. Yeah, oh, you're right. Um, which also means it's my turn. Todd talked to this one earlier. I won't mention it too much. That was higher up his list. I had to watch it like in three segments. So I think that kind of pulled me down a little bit. Um, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Martin Scorsese. Yeah. This uh, this is a great film. I don't know if he had mentioned. Did you mention Chris Christopherson? Uh, I did not know. And he's great. You know, he's just he's really great. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone is. Uh, mm. Doesn't she move to Reno? <laughs> Where is it she moves? Forgive me. Is it? Uh, it's not Reno. Where is it she moves? Uh, I, I don't even remember. I don't remember, but I love that level of authenticity we get. Um, like you'd see real, like legit, kind of balding dudes, and mm -hmm. there wasn't the facade um, and the carefully manicured images you get in films nowadays. I, I, just, I don't know. This film kind of has that. I, I, I get what you're saying about Burst, but I do feel like some acting mm -hmm. to me. Um, I think she's been better in other things, but um, yeah, no, it's it's good no, for sure. And at a time when you were just starting to see divorce on film, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Ugh. So that's cool. But, uh, yeah, that's my number 27. And our last three. All right. Uh, number 20. Over five hours in. Yay. <laughs> um, 
is from 2014. It's Talia Lavi's Zero Motivation. Um, it's about a. I know. <laughs> shut up. Uh, it's about a, a disparate group of women in the Israeli army. Uh, they're constantly frustrated. You know, they get no respect or anything like that. Um, it uh, it does a really nice job of uh, balancing the humorous and serious aspects of the the film. It's got some uh, intriguing character dynamics. Uh, you know, when the, when the claws come out with these chicks, man, it's you know fucking business time. Um, it gets a little bit unfocused from its episodic structure, um, but there's a clear through line to it, uh, mostly on the the one girl, although the other girls kind of. You kind of move in and move out. Uh, you get to see a guy try to fuck a garbage can, which is always <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, it's uh, it's uh, it's just a nice movie. Um, it's it's not. What? How do you not get that from there? How do you not get A from from A to B on that one? Um, I've got I've got to see why he doesn't uh, succeed in fucking the garbage can. Well, you know, it's kind of like throwing a hot dog down a hallway, I guess. <laughs> Zero motivation. <laughs> to fuck a garbage can. <laughs> but uh, I know I know that uh, some folks didn't really care for this one. Uh, I don't know why. I found it charming and I found it uh, interesting and I like the characters. Uh, I like watching the shit that they get into. Um, like I said, it is kind of episodic and that kind of detracts from it a little bit. But uh, at the same time, uh, not enough to... Uh, to make it um, make it bad in any way, shape, or form for me. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's my number twenty-eight. Awesome. Uh, my number twenty-eight is the guard <laughs> from two thousand eleven. John Michael McDonough. Oh, that's um, so good. It's great. It's great. It's um, uh, it, you know he's he's Martin McDonough's brother who did in Bruges and uh, Seven Psychopaths. Um, I think this is my favorite of his films. I like Calvary a lot. Um, I really actively hated uh, War on Everyone, his newest one. Um, it's really, really bad uh, per my tastes. Um, uh, I don't know if that has to do with the fact that he abandoned um, his Irish actors and he came to America and, and tried to make kind of an American movie and it's, he loses some of its wit and some of its... Um, um, uh, Irish humor, um, but this movie—it's Don Cheadle and Brendan Gleeson, and it's a buddy cop movie. It's Lethal Weapon with a heavy dose of uh, a heavy dose of existential black Irish comedy, um, Irish black comedy, I guess. <laughs> Not black Irish, but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, Brendan Gleeson, everything he's in. Um, I'll watch. Uh, it makes me want to watch the Harry Potter movies. Um, he's really great. He's really funny. Um, and there's not a lot to say about it. It's a it's a good comedy. It's got some really amazing action stuff, especially the back end. Um, there's some shootout stuff that kind of is reminiscent of the uh, of uh, the the boat um, fight in Usual Suspects or something like that. Um. But it's great. I I think you I think you could uh I think you'd have a great time with this on a Sunday afternoon or uh, on a Saturday night with friends. Um, 
really fun, really smart, really tightly written uh, crime comedy. Yeah, no, I'd second it. This is a that's a really good one, and Gleason is outstanding, and so is Cheadle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My next film was one I really didn't give a, as fair a shake to as I should have because I made the mistake of watching it the night of the U.S. election. Oh. So, that's sidetracked. <laughs> um, watching it, unfortunately. Uh, it was, a, I'd never heard of it. Um, and I thought, yeah, i got to see this. My, this filmmaker had a film way up my list in the number two spot. It's Ingmar Bergman's Sawdust and Tinsel. Uh, or Glicarnes oh. Aften. Um, this is about a traveling caravan, like a circus. Um, kind of, uh, you know, hard, uh, kind of hard luck. They're, things aren't going great for them. And it's about the lives and the different people uh, in the troupe. Really great, really wonderful slice of life stuff. I really enjoyed this. The photography is excellent. I want to say there's Mr. Nyquist again. Um, so, yeah, great stuff. Harry Anderson, Gunnar Bjornstrand, Kelsey Freeze. Nice. Good stuff. It's a, it's a dark night to watch some Bergman. Uh, yeah. It's it's a, a, that's a, that's a, <laughs> a or something. Yeah, <laughs> gotta have a little, gotta throw a little levity into that uh, that maelstrom. All right, uh, do 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 twenty nine, uh, nineteen seventy four from Takashi Tsuboshima. It is Lupin the Third: Strange Psychokinetic Strategy. Um, Holy shit, is, that's a good title. Yeah, it's a mouthful. <laughs> um, Fittingly, it's uh, you know it's a giant cartoon. It's filled with action, lots of off-color humor, uh, very very off-color humor. In fact, um, it's extremely stylish. Uh, there's all kinds of visual tricks uh, being employed throughout, and on top of that, it's like so many um, Japanese films up through like what the mid '80s to '90s. Uh, everything is you know it's very thoughtfully shot. Um, the uh, the guy playing Inspector Zenigata, who's uh, the actor's name is Shiro Ito, uh, is just priceless in this thing. Um, and just to, I, I don't know why the hell I wrote this down, but this is something that I wrote down when I was taking notes. Uh, quote unquote, the leather hot pants girl sing and dance assassins. Uh, and, well, <laughs> so uh, if that doesn't get you to want to see this movie, I just don't know what the fuck to tell you, man. It's there's nothing. There's no other way I could sell it. Nobody's fucking trash cans in this thing. Well, hey, then there we go. <laughs> non-tra- well, non-trash one, can were. fuckery. <laughs> oh yeah. And you sold assassins. it until that point. What's that? What was the last thing? I said, and they're assassins. So, there you go. That's my number 29, buddy. Nice. My number 29 is a 1954 Louis Bunnell movie um, that is unlike any other Bunnell movie that you've seen. Um, Bunuel, I guess. Um, Bunuel. Um, Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, yeah. It's good. 
It's really good. I love uh, I love that. I, I read a lot of those uh, types of a lot of Robert Louis Stevenson, Daniel Defoe, um, uh, a lot of those great sort of a classic adventure uh, um, books from the 19th century, um, 18th, 19th century. And um, I was obsessed with Robinson Crusoe as a kid. Um, and seeing this, um, you know, it, it really brought back those those memories of watching uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That I think I think Wild World of Disney, is that what that was called? Um, that that worked in the fifties, where like Bobby Driscoll's Treasure Island, um, kidnapped, um, the Adventures of Robin Hood with uh, Errol Flynn, um, all of those sorts of movies. It recalls that. Um, style of movie making um, that is, uh, you know, an adaptation of a classic kid story that it's kind of um, for everyone. Uh, it looks great. Um, it has some touches of the surrealism you expect from Boonwell, but it is definitely his most uh, um, restrained. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, traditional. Um, but it stars Daniel Hurley, who you would know from. If you don't know by name, he's the uh, he's the nefarious uh, boss of um, OCP and uh, RoboCop. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Silver Shamrock. Uh, Silver Shamrock. He's the boss, and uh, he's the the creator of the uh, masks and Silver Shamrock in uh, Halloween Three. Mm-hmm. Um, but he plays Robinson Crusoe in this, and. Uh, it's just excellent. Um, Will, I think you could show this to your kids, uh, oh, yeah. and I think they would. Uh, I think they could get into it. Uh, it's got a great timeless um, energy. Mm-hmm. No, I uh, agree with of you. An adventure story. Yeah. So that's my number twenty-nine. Will. Will are you there? I said it, man. I'm fucking cooked. Sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I had um, said, well, I wrote that one down. That's good to know. It'll be my kids first been well. Um, and then when you said <laughs> you were kind of handed off to me, and I just kind of stared at the baton blankly. Uh, <laughs> next film, I don't want to get too much into the politics of this, because everyone, um, everyone to watch or not watch things uh, for personal reasons. So I don't want to get into what's right and what's wrong. I've chosen to not watch any Roman Polanski films, uh, certain films, certain Woody Allen, uh, Victor Salva, a few people. Um, but uh, I watched a film, and I didn't know it was... Um, I didn't know it was Roman Polanski at the time. When I watched I and I was kind of admittedly a bit blinded by my love for... Um, Oh, no. You know what? I'm rambling here. Uh, Forgive me. Um, Polanski is one of the stars of the film. He didn't direct it. Uh, But that's what must have been why I watched it then. Okay. It's late. Uh, It's an Italian-French co-production. It's called A Pure Formality from 1994. Uh, I watched it because of my love for Gerard Depardieu. Huh. Yeah. This is uh, like a two-hander, basically. It's about a writer, played by Depardieu, who gets pulled into the local police precinct on a dark and stormy night, and is grilled by the investigator, who's played by Polanski, um, uh, about a murder, and it's kind of a bit 
of an unreliable narrator thing, or is it a reliable narrator? And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a good piece. I mean, it's late in Depardieu's career when he'd gotten kind of lazy about what he was doing and cashed a lot of checks, but he still puts in a great performance, and um, he's he's just one of my favorites. I love Depardieu so much. So uh, yeah, that was yeah. Cool. Cool. I've I've never heard of that one, but um. Nice. So he did uh, Cinema Paradiso, Malena, Legend of 1900 with Tim Roth. I think it's Tim Roth. Where he plays the piano player on the boat. Uh, 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 Not sure. Don't know. Never saw it. Cinema Paradiso. Yeah. Well, I've seen, no, I've seen parts of that. Sorry, I haven't seen the whole thing through. Um, anyway, so there you go. Uh, that's 29. I'm going to keep my volume okay. turned up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have a two-hander like Will does. Um, wishing I did, but uh, um, my number 30 is from 2015, directed by one Elizabeth Banks. And it's Pitch Perfect 2, if you can believe that. Oh, wow. How about that for a curve? <laughs> um, to Todd Sport the old scimitar, dear buddy. You, buddy. Uh, it's, uh, you know, this is just more of the same raunchy humor and acapella. Uh, but um, I think that Banks really proves that she's a solid director here. I don't know if she's done anything else, you know, maybe in television or something. I couldn't tell you. Uh, but uh, I was really surprised when I found out that she directed this because it was good. I love her uh, as an actress. Yeah, no, uh, me too. Great. Yeah. I wish she was more of the America's sweetheart. Like, I feel like she kind of is, kind of, maybe this, you know, helped her cross over, but uh, she was the female lead in Slither, wasn't she? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the thing that's great about her is that she is – I mean she works with all the, the guys from the state, uh, David Wayne and all those guys. She's in What Hot American yep. Summer and she works um, in all of the in – the, in the comedy uh, world and a comedy world that I like uh, that I think is kind of wry and, um, and, and clever. And I think that precludes her a bit from being America's sweetheart because she she kind of takes the piss, you know. Sure. She kind of like constantly does, uh, you know, is not afraid to be um, crass and not afraid to be um, sort of goofy. Um, and I think that you know turns turns people off in some ways. I don't understand why that is. Um, uh, I think I think uh, people want their um, their women stars to be. Uh, elegant or something like that, feminine uh, in a traditional sense, and she uh, plays with that, and I and I really respect her for that. Yeah, no, I would agree with everything you just said. Um, now, the film does have a few cringeworthy moments in it, obviously, uh, especially when uh, whenever Haley Steinfeld uh, sings the the song that she wrote. Uh, but the movie overall, it's fun, funny, and it's uh, kind of touching. Um, I also discovered that I am in love with Brigitte uh, Sorensen, who plays the leader of the uh, German a cappella group in this thing. Um, she has a really fantastic chemistry on screen with uh, Anna Kendrick, uh, and she's got a really natural uh, sarcastic charm to her. 
And uh, overall, yeah, I mean, whenever this is on, I'll just kind of, if there's nothing else going on, I have no problems stopping and watching it. It's, uh, you know, it's fun and good for what ails you. So, uh, do I sing alone? Yeah, with nobody else? Oh, <laughs> George Thorogood. Um, no, no, I do not sing alone. How are my Green Bay Packers? I, I don't know. I don't know any of the words anyway to these songs. They all sing. They all sing these like weird songs that I don't know the words to. So, unless it was, I could do, I could, I could maybe, I could maybe do like the first two verses of Baby Got Back. After that, nice. I got, the, I got nothing. How are my Green Bay Packers in it? <laughs> they were good. They were good. Like, I'm gonna a, say that it was funny. The kind of a Super Bowl shuffle moment. Uh, sort of, kind of. I will let everyone discover the joy of that scene for themselves. Cool. Cool. This is the last one to make the cut for, um, for good old sports. Uh, All right. All right. It's 1993. Coppola film. Um, but not Francis Ford. It's Christopher Coppola. Uh, Nicholas Cage's brother. Uh, it stars uh, Peter Fonda. Michael Bean, James Coburn, uh, Charlie Sheen, Clarence Williams III, Angus Shrim, uh, Mickey Dolenz from The Monkees, and the most unhinged Nicolas Cage performance of all time, um, Deadfall from <laughs> 1993. Um, I cannot believe that I'm saying that this is the most unhinged Nicolas Cage performance. Um but it's unbelievable. I think there's a supercut of all his scenes that's um, about 10 minutes long um, that you'd be well worth watching. If you don't want to watch the movie, just watch the supercut of his scenes. He he puts on a Timothy Carey-style performance in this, <laughs> in this deadfall. Um, it's it's crazy. I, I loved it. Even your cat's like, yeah. My cat is my cat's freaking out. My my uh, my wife just got home. Um, hey, honey, what's Hi. up? Hi. What do you want to ask? What do you want to ask? I'm just wondering how many movies you're talking about have women directors. Good question. A good. A good I had at least one, two. What's the percentage? She's wondering what the percentage of the. She was at the uh, the airport protest uh, against the immigration ban today, so she's very um, she's she's very incensed. Um, and we've been we went to the women's march and uh, not to be political, um, but you know I mean just standing uh, and you know at this like kind of heightened climate, um, we've been we've been pretty politically involved right now. Um, I got three. And we've been talking three. Okay. Three movies out of like a hundred. Out of thirty. Out of ninety. Well, out of thirty for him. Yeah. Three. Out of thirty. Three out of thirty. Yeah. Not acceptable. Not okay. Five. Yeah. Well, a lot of our films feature super strong films. Yeah. 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 Is the cat saying, "I want chicken. I want liver. Deadfall. Deadfall. Please deliver." Yeah, my cat is like freaking out right now because she's home and he wants he wants food. But but yeah, so that's my that's my thirty. Will. Um, let's see here. 
Also, we should say, uh, before it's interesting, I think a lot of our films pass the Bechtel test, so... Right, right, right. Which is something we talk about a lot. There you go. Uh, last film, yeah. uh, let me go on a bummer, kind of, like, queasy note. Um, tremendous film by a filmmaker that I think if you saw his more recent output, you would think he didn't have it in him. Um, and it's a shame that his career kind of went this way. Um, it's Uli Lamo's, uh The Tenderness of Wolves. Oh, I love that movie. I love that movie. I love that movie. Yeah, we were doing the show. Kurt Robb puts in an unreal film. Mm. It's great. Um, it's a hot Yeah, good on, uh, good on, because it deserved to uh, um, Yeah, that's, that's all I got. Kurt Robb is um, he's one of my favorite performers um, in Fassbender's uh, Why Does Hair Are Run Amok. Uh, it's it's his performance in that is uh, is uh, unbelievable. Um, and he was he was a great star. I think if I'm not mistaken, he died of AIDS fairly young. Um, but World on a Wire, Kurt Robb is in that, as is Uli Lomel as an actor. Um, Yeah, yeah. Great. That was a big show. I want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate you all having me on. Uh, this has been an unbelievably fun time. It is, man. Um, one yeah. of us, right? So you're a man of the pen. The chaps now, so. Uh, it's our pleasure, Todd. Thanks for doing it. I know, like I said, zero motivation at the back end. Uh, 100% motivation to crawl into bed for all of us, I'm sure, at this point. Uh, this is the longest show we've done in... At least a year. At least a year. Absolutely. Um, so, I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Um, hope you've had your pens and paper, or your crayons, or your <laughs> metal, whatever you... Want to write lists down on uh, 90 films here? I don't think there's a, there's not much overlap either. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I'd have to yeah, I'd have to think back, but I'm not sure there was any. Only one I um, can think of off the top of my head. Alice doesn't live here. That's yeah, that's the only one I think. Um, yeah. So uh, as always, um, other than Bond movie at this point in the evening, there's only one thing left to say. Adios. 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 Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 